and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. All right. Good evening, Mr. Real. How are you doing? Man, You're soaking what? in that applause, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I'm just soaking it in. Uh, what a fun evening this is going to be. There's some really cool stuff that you and I have been chatting about through the week, and you've come up with some really you, you've come up with a lot of good ideas in your lifetime, Mr. Radio Free Mormon. But tonight, you may have outdone yourself. Oh, you're too kind. We'll let the audience decide. All I know is I've been awash in all these documents relating to the Kinderhook plates. And a lot of them, Maven went to uh, the Lighthouse Bookstore and talked to Sandra Tanner. And Sandra yeah. apparently had a file. Maven, are you there? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I might be losing my voice a little bit. Um, but yeah, I uh, happened to be in the neighborhood. So I went by and I just asked her what uh, what she had. And uh, yeah, she did. She pulled out this little manila envelope and she spent quite some time looking through it. Um, so I don't know if she's watching tonight, but thank you so much. And I I, I feel bad because I kind of made a joke. She went to the back to make a bunch of copies for me. And I made a joke that if she didn't hurry, I was going to buy half of her store and I didn't have the funds for that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but then I felt bad because I'm really not telling her to hurry. I would abs- I would never. You know, <laughs> She's she's the queen. She's the gem. But yeah, she just uh, yeah, just. Gave me a lot of stuff she had, um, just in case it might remotely be useful to, for tonight. So um, I think she'll be happy that some of it is. So, yeah. So so file cabinets in the Lighthouse Ministry, and, and they're just folders. And one of the folders is the Kinderhook plates. Yep. Yeah, it's the old-fashioned the old, the old fashioned style. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> reminds me, when I first joined the church, I was keeping information that way. And now, now everything's on the internet, which, uh, thank goodness. And Maven, while we have you here... I understand that you are on the cusp of becoming more famous than you already are. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, yeah, I finished uh, interviewing with John DeLynn. It was a bit difficult between our two schedules. Um, but yeah, so uh, the, the Mormon Stories podcast um, is done and it will be airing next week. So the first one will be Wednesday at 1. So if people want more Maven, you can have a lot of Maven before the show. <laughs> I love it. And then the next one will be Thursday at one. So yeah, two parts. Excellent. Yeah. So I think yeah, I'm people... ready. Well, I guess we'll see. I guess it's one of those things where I think you don't know until it happens, and then you yeah. just go with it. So yeah. yeah. Give Maven a bunch of fun next week in the live chat if you get a chance to listen to that. <laughs> We're not even gonna get. It's just like all the early stuff. So. Yeah, I don't think I've talked a lot about a lot of the stuff in in that on the show. So, yeah, it'll be new. It'll be different. Cool. Yeah. Awesome, I'm looking awesome. forward to it. Thanks, Logan and everyone else. Everyone's been so supportive of me since I've joined the show. And I, I really, really appreciate that. Yeah. So I'll put that out there. People on this Thanks. side of things, uh, they're good people, right? Yes, they are. Yes, they are. So tonight's show, are we ready? Let's do we it. Got the announcements out of the way. Let's rock and roll. We're ready for the opening hymn. 
Yeah, let me get rid of uh, that little piece of the screen there. Ta-da, ta-da. So tonight, we are talking about the Kinderhook plates. And uh, we we named it uh, Fugit's uh, Kinderhook Fugazi or Fugate Kinderhook Fugazi. And, and by uh, we, Bill means Bill did this. <laughs> <laughs> so there are there appears to be a couple different pronunciations of uh, fugate or fugit and we'll go with fugate through the rest of the night thank you because i used to know a family with the last name fugate and we don't want to dishonor your high school yeah. yeah we don't want to dishonor those kids i knew in junior high school no no and you'll see why some people say fugate later on as well um but and then fugazi the last word there there was like a a, a mob movie i think it was like donnie briscoe or something like that it was al pacino and one guy's trying to show Al Pacino a fake diamond ring. And Al goes, is, is that a Fugazi? And he's like, what's a Fugazi? Fugazi's a fake. So the Kinderhook plates, which we now know are fakes. Um, and we'll talk at length about those tonight. But that's the reason the episode title was picked. And so with that, let's rock and roll. Um, let's go ahead and have you add the uh, slideshow up there, Maven. And I'm going to put that picture up instead. And whichever one you want to add. And uh, perfect. So let's get started. Um, let me give some background data. The section A here I've got is uh, the setup for the Kinderhook Dig. In April 16th of 1843, Robert Wiley uh, did an excavation of an Indian burial. That's what he alleged in Kinderhook, Illinois. And that's why we get the name Kinderhook uh, attached to these plates is because of the location that this happened. He claimed to have dreamed a dream three nights in a row to dig there. I also think in this way, it plays very much with Mormonism. Moroni coming to visit for three days um, and being told where plates are, where he needs to go fetch them. So again, notice this overlap, these commonalities. Uh, he hired men to dig with him. Uh, so here you have, in a sense, a little bit of a treasure dig, don't you? Where they find some, some plates. Yeah, apparently it wasn't all that uncommon. Yep. And it talks about they dug 10 feet down. But as you pointed out to me earlier this week, I, I also saw a reference to 13 feet. And I think you said there might have been another source or two that mentioned different depths. Yeah, we know that there was a, a hole that he dug directly down into this mound. But yeah. when you look at the different accounts, the one thing that nobody can agree on is the actual depth of it. It's all over the place, six feet, eight feet, 10 feet. But we do know that he dug a hole down there and he did it the day before says he stopped because of rain. Oh, sorry, you go ahead. No, no, and then no, he, and then he no, collects everybody that. else to come the next day after he had uh, planted something. Yeah, yeah. Of the hole. He, they claimed that they had discovered a skeleton. There, there are reports later on in the story where they're like, there was no skeleton. That, that was just ridiculous. But there were folks, at least in the early storytelling, that claimed a, a skeleton that was maybe over eight feet tall had been discovered, which reminds me a little bit of Zelf. And that whole story as well. And when uh, this Robert Wiley did the dig, it was lots of non-members contributing to the dig. But at least one or two of the folks that were involved were members of the church, faithful, yeah. believing members of the LDS church uh, or Mormon church, I should say, since nothing's broke off at this point. Uh, section B here, uh, Joseph hears these reports, likely from the Mormons that were involved. And uh, he requests to see the plates. And so we know that Joseph examines them. Um, he states that he won't translate them until they're sent off to various antiquarian societies. And this is the quote. In any case, the translation, and we'll get to the letter later where this quote appears because it's important 
but at least to share the quote with you on this section. In any case, the translation for which hope had been expressed in the times and seasons did not appear. In a letter dated April 8th, 1878, Wilbur Fugate recalled, we understood Joe Smith said the plates would make a book of 1,200 pages, but he would not agree to translate them until they were sent to the Antiquarian Society at Philadelphia, France, and England. Um, we, we don't know exactly what happened there, uh, but we at least get in a source or two that they were to be sent off before Joseph would approach the translation. Um, what would have been the time? And I, I asked you this during the week. What would have been a time frame to mail something like these two, three different antiquarian societies, a couple of them over the water, and to get a response back? And your response to me was? Uh, quite a while. Yeah, I think we were thinking it would take months, correct? Yes, I would think so. So even if Joseph, if Joseph really did say, I'm not translating these till I get report back, the reality of him translating the whole thing would have taken months. Um, and, and, and that's if these people would have responded to him. Right. And I appreciate Joseph Smith wanting to ensure the legitimacy of these plates. On the other hand, one might think that a spirit of discernment as a prophet of God should be able to give him the right answer without having to appeal to antiquarian societies. You would think he could just put a rock in a hat and figure it out, huh? You'd think, but. (laughs) All right. So there may have been a translation manuscript, something similar to like the book of Abraham. But if so, uh, at least in one report, they said it might have existed. They don't really have any evidence that it did, but it is the way that Joseph describes would have worked with something like this. And if it, if so, it had been lost. And then just another note here, this image that you're looking at right now on the screen, folks, uh, were visiting uh, Joseph Smith when he had these in his possession, and they would trace them onto a piece of paper and make little notes about what was going on that day and who that you know I, I visited. I took this at Joseph Smith's house. Uh, what's it say? They're found near Quincy, and so it's a um, a tracing of the Kinderhook plate. And these would have been about three inches tall. They were really small. In fact, RFM. When I first became Mormon and first learned this story. I was actually, for a long time, I went thinking these were much bigger. And it, I was actually kind of surprised when I learned they were like three inches tall. Same right. with you? Yes. Is, it, is that William Clayton's journal, by the way? That picture? This is, just, this is just a guy who, a kid who came to visit the house. Oh. Oh, this isn't anybody in particular. I don't know if the name is on there or not. But this is just a, a, a passerby who went to see the plates and made a tracing of them and put some notes on Because it was a big deal. And I know that William Clayton, who will be Mm -hmm. very important to the story here shortly, made a tracing in his journal as well when he's writing about what Joseph Smith said about the plates. And also later, not that much later, Brigham Young also made a similar tracing. Yeah, yeah. And I read some of that information today as well. In fact, it's on the document where Clayton, at least in one place, puts some of this translation and makes that tracing on the back side. And so it is evidence that he's at least in the presence of these Kinderhook plates when that happens. And that becomes important to the story story as we move along. Um, Section C, Joseph attempts some sort of translation. Uh, Smith's private secretary, William Clayton, recorded that upon receiving the plates, Smith sent for his Hebrew Bible and lexicon, possibly suggesting that he might translate the plates by conventional means rather than use of a seer stone or direct revelation. On the 1st of May, 1843, Clayton wrote in his journal, and as published in multiple places, quote, 
I have seen six brass plates covered with ancient characters of language containing from 30 to 40 on each side of the plates. President Joseph Smith has translated a portion and says they contain the history of a person with whom they were found, and he was a descendant of Ham through the loins of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and that he received his kingdom from the ruler of heaven and earth. Joseph Smith planned to translate the plates in their entirety. The editors of the Nauvoo Neighbor, Apostles John Taylor and Wilford Woodruff, promised in a June 1843 article that, quote, the contents of the plates, comma, together with a facsimile of the same, will be published in the Times and Seasons as soon as the translation is completed, unquote. Page from William Clayton Diary with a tracing of the plate and Smith's translation, uh, the history of the church also states that Smith said the following, quote, I have translated a portion of the plates and find they contain the history of the person with whom they were found. He was a descendant of Ham through the loins of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he received his kingdom from ruler of heaven and earth. And uh, this page, if you go to the next page, uh, Maven. By the way, Tim Rathbone is saying that this is Brigham Young's diary, and that is the tracing that Brigham Young made of the plate. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. There was a note in two sources I read where people were coming by and essentially getting tracings of those. And that was my understanding. So thank you for the correction, which we welcome here on Mormonism Live. And uh, so what you're looking at right now is the William Clayton diary. And uh, I can't exactly read his handwriting, but you can see right about in the middle of the page, the word ham um, of ham. And so that's the section where uh, we get the translation of this. We only get a couple of sentences essentially. Um, and for a reason, this kind of buys out, and we'll talk about that here too. But hey, Bill, can I mention something? Please. Um, first off, your voice is breaking up, and I don't know if the audience hears it, but I do with the connection. Yeah, I don't. Second I don't thing know. is, pretty sure that's the Gale. That's the page from the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language. See the symbols in the margin. I do. This is the paper that. Uh, uh, Brian Haglund sent us. Is this the? That's the Gale right there. This is the Book of Abraham stuff. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. So this is the section that is similar to the stuff we'll talk about in terms right. of the translation. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Let me apologize. So what you're looking at here is the uh, grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language that was used by in the Book of Abraham, which has a very similar section to the section translated in the Kinderhook plates. Again, my apologies. Um, for whatever reason, when Brian sent that yesterday, I was thinking he was sending us Clayton's diary because that's what I was asking about throughout that conversation. So my we'll blame fault. Brian on this. Yeah, yeah, Bri- yeah. We'll, we'll do that. <laughs> no, because Brian has been stellar and, and very helpful. Because when I went to find Clayton's diary, um, y- you can't really link it anywhere. It's not available on the internet. And I think there are places like Signature Books who published it, or at least portions of it, um, my understanding is there might still be sections that are kind of held back, but, um, but I couldn't find like when you go into uh, the Joseph Smith papers project and they're footing note, footnoting other documents, most of them are hyperlinked so that you can immediately go to that document. In this case, it says that Clayton's diaries are with worth the church history library. And I reached out to Mark Ashurst McGee with the church history library, trying to, uh, 
access an image of what I thought was this. Um, and he said that, you know, it's a private collection. They may or may not. And so uh, no biggie. Um, all right. The next thing here is that uh, Joseph's interaction with the plates was published as a broadside in the Times and Seasons. Maven, will you show those uh, those two pictures? And so in the Times and Seasons, they put out uh, essentially a brief explanation of these Kinderhook plates and included in them uh, an image of them. And then somebody superimposed the bottom kind of over the top and it's a little cleaner image. And so you can kind of see um, that. And, and most people who are well-read in Mormonism know the basics of the Kinderhook story. And so I don't think that it is most of this information is anything super new, um, but we're going to get to some things that I think are. And so the the next thing we wanted to talk about, and I'm, we're zipping through it because there's some places kind of halfway through and then at the end where we're going to want to just kind of slow down and really take our time explaining a couple things. Um, so the next section is what the church and the community had to say about the Kenderhook moment. And so here's some quotes about this uh, event. And Sorry, I just had I just had a call from Don Bradley. Please. He's decided not to come on the show tonight. <laughs> no problem. He didn't I, know exactly when we were starting. So anyway. I got you. No sweat. I'm glad he he informed us as much. Yeah. We had invited him to be on. Um, and we also reached out to Mark Ashurst McGee. And why we reached out to those two individuals will become very important here shortly. Uh, but Don has declined to come on to the show. So the quotes here. Number one. Uh, quote, why does the circumstance of the plates recently found in a mound in Pike County, Illinois, by Mr. Wiley, together with the ethnology and a thousand other things, go to prove the Book of Mormon true? Answer, because it is true. Times and Seasons, Volume 5, page 406. Number two, the New York, which Joe is about to issue as a translation of these Kinderhook plates, will be nothing more nor less than a sequel to the Book of Mormon. Warsaw Signal, May 22nd, 1844. Uh, well, last one. The contents of the plate together with a facsimile of the same will be published in the Times and Seasons as soon as a translation is completed. The Nauvoo Neighbor, June 1843. And uh, sadly, the, the translation story kind of essentially ends at that moment. Joseph uh, gets these plates uh, he essentially seems to translate a sentence or two of them, and then the story just kind of vanishes, except that the church continues to believe that Joseph did offer a partial, authentic translation of an ancient set of plates. And then the story starts to get messy. And so we'll start off here with a little newspaper. Um, maybe you've got that newspaper. Yep. And so the newspaper to the left, this is the New York Herald, May 30th, 1843. Uh, and it says image two. I don't know if it's page two or not. It's too small a print for me to read. But we were able to zoom in and capture the section. This would have come right about in the middle of the page, um, of the page on the left that you're seeing. This is the piece of it. And this is important. And RFM, I'll let you comment after I read this, because I think you at least need to make mention of one piece of this. Well, I will later. Okay, gotcha. So here it is. A very important part for Don Bradley's discovery, which I will talk about in lieu Perfect. of Don. 
another set of plates have been found in Pike County in this state. They were dug out of a large mound 15 feet from the summit. So there we go. By a company of persons, 15 in number, who all affirmed to the fact that their situation of their situation when found. There were six in number, about three inches in length and two and a half broad at one end and one inch broad at the other, being something of the form of a bell, about the 16th of an inch thick with a hole in the small end of each fastened together with a ring, apparently of iron or steel, but which was so oxidized as to crumble to pieces when handled. The plates were evidently brass and are covered on both sides with hieroglyphics. They were brought up and shown to Joseph Smith. He compared them in my presence with his Egyptian alphabet, which he took from the plates from which the Book of Mormon, I'm sure he means Book of Abraham, but from which the Book of Mormon was translated, and they are evidently the same characters. He therefore will be able to decipher them. There can be no doubt but they are a record of some kind buried with an individual centuries ago. A skeleton was found with them. Some of the bones in such a state of preservation to sh- as to show the size of the individual whose height must have been eight and a half feet. You may expect something very remarkable pretty soon. Do you have any thoughts at all on that? Or should we just move on to the next section? I want to move on because we'll come back to it. By the way, people are talking about the difficulty that you're having and that you need to yell to your housemates downstairs to quit soaking up all the the bandwidth on the internet. Yeah, I don't think that's the issue. So let me um People can say if that's any better, I can turn my machine off for a second. I tell you what, while you're doing that, let me just mention that what this ends up happening uh what ends up happening here is that these plates are produced and apparently from the reports, everyone who goes on record thinks they're real. And from the LDS point of view, and you read one of those quotes earlier, this ends up being huge confirmation of Joseph Smith's story about the gold plates, which are no longer around because the angel took them. But he certainly described them. He's got the witness testimonies and everything, that he's got gold plates or metal plates out of the ground with strange characters written on them from which he translates the Book of Mormon. So the very fact that somebody totally not even associated with the church goes digging into another mound, because Hill Cumorah kind of looks like one, even though it wasn't really, but they go digging into a mound and they find a set of six metal plates with strange writing on it, which is obviously very old, or at least it appears old. It was set up to look very old. Now this becomes massive confirmation to the Mormons that Joseph Smith was telling the truth about the gold plates. And this is going to account in large degree for why it is that the LDS church seems very reticent to let go of the idea that these are authentic over the course of time, in spite of evidence that comes out that shows that they're fake. So do I sound any better? You do right now. Perfect. Let's see what happens. Okay. All right. So um, the next thing we're going to move on to in this section, I want to talk about the fact that there's this moment where the accusation of a scam is suggested and it's across multiple sources. 
the first one, the source actually is dated April 25th, 1856, though I don't think it surfaces until later down the line. But it is written by W.P. Harris, who was one of the nine witnesses to the discovery of the Kinderhook plates. And he wrote a letter in which he stated that the plates were not genuine. He said, quote, I was present with a number at or near Kinderhook and helped to dig at the time the plates were found. I made an honest affidavit to the same. Since that time, Bridge Witten said to me that he cut, let me say this again, so that for me that he cut and prepared the plates and he and R. Wiley engraved them themselves. Wilborn uh, Fugate, and this is the place where it's spelled Fugate, F-U-G-I-T. Wilborn Fugate appeared to be the chief with R. Wiley and B. Witten. And this is found, and you can show that next one, Maven. This is found in the Book of Mormon, uh, question mark, by James D. Bales, pages 95 uh, to 96. And so in this book is that April 25th, 1856 affidavit by W.P. Harris. Can I mention a couple things here, Bill, <coughs> that I hope will make this a little clear because we've got a bunch of different characters. It helps to know what's really going on here. What's really going on, even though it only comes out uh, by drips and drabs over the course of decades, is that the main people who are involved in this hoax, because that's what they are. It's a hoax. Believe it or not, the Kinderhook plates are not ancient. They're not authentic. It's a hoax. And the main people behind it are Robert Wiley and Wilbur Fugate. Okay. And apparently the blacksmith, Bridge Witten, was involved as well. So what Robert Wiley does is he goes out there the day before, digs the hole down, finds something like rock underneath it, and he strikes upon it, and it sounds hollow underneath. So he takes the plates which have been previously prepared, lifts up the rock, puts them under, and then puts the rock back on. The next day, he comes out with a bunch of other people because he wants to have witnesses to the discovery of these plates, right? Yeah. So one of those people, I think Wilbur Fugate is there, but Dr. Harris is there as well. There are nine people who end up signing the affidavit about the discovery of these plates and that they really were found at the bottom of this 10 or 15 foot hole in this burial mound. So then what happens is that by 1855, Dr. Harris, who was not involved in the hoax, but he's a witness to it being found and he signs off on this declaration, he was hoaxed as well. And he finds out from the local blacksmith who sort of cut out these little bell-shaped pieces of metal to make the plates, he finds out from the blacksmith that that's what the blacksmith did. So now he realizes he's been hoaxed. He writes a letter to, I believe, a family member regarding this. And that lays dormant until I think it's 1912 or so. And it's basically unknown until it's published in, well, this book or somewhere else it gets published. I think it's published in a different periodical. But it's not until around 1910 or 1912 that it finally gets published and comes to light. But by that time... Something else very significant has happened with regard to Wilbur Fugate, who was involved in the hoax. Yeah. So the second source we get is uh, James T. Cobb, stepson of Brigham Young, wrote to Wilbur 
uh, Fugate in 1879-1878. Can you pull that one up, Maven? Yeah, and by, this, by the way, the stepson of Brigham Young is not a faithful Mormon. He's left the church. He's actually become an apostate. Yeah. If you'll zoom in, Maven, on page one, if you'll go back to one page. Yep, and go to the very top right there. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I just want to note there were lots of places that said this letter was from 1878. Can you make it a little bigger on the bottom right there? Yep. And then, yep. Um, if you go just above that, there's the gray bar. And if you slide it, yep. Perfect. So then let's zoom in a little more. And then just above Yep. And then just a, just above that magnet. Yep. Perfect. And go up a little bit. Perfect. So you can see the reason why there is a dating issue. Some people say 1878. Some people say 1879. The actual cursive handwriting of the date looks like 1879, although the, the last digit is deeply smudged. And then up above uh, there is 1878 written in brackets. And so just to note the reason why we're not exactly sure what the date is because of that smudge on that last digit. Um Fugate uh, responds. This is what he said. So James T. Cobb writes to Will uh, Wilborn Fugate and essentially asking about these Kinderhook plates because you know they're maybe they're hearing things and they're starting to wonder what's the real story here. What Fugate responds with is he says, "Quote," uh, and this will be on page two of that document. So we can zoom back out um, just to show that. And I don't remember offhand, I think it's on the left-hand side, but he's telling the story about, uh, and actually it looks like that's the Brigham Young's um, uh, stepson. So the response there is below in the paper. And so what he says, he says, quote, I received your letter in regard to those plates and will say, answer, they are a humbug gotten up by Robert Wiley, Bridge Witten, and myself. We read in Pratt's Prophecy, a missionary tract written by Parley Pratt, that truth would spring up out of the earth. We concluded to prove the prophecy by way of a joke. Bridge Witten cut them, the plates, out of some pieces of copper. Wiley and I made the hieroglyphics by making impressions on beeswax and filling them with acid and putting it on the plates. What a what a thing they did, huh? Um, well, it's better than handling the acid yourself. Yeah, Fugate wrote of their creation... Um, I think this is the same thing here. Bridge went and cut them out with some copper. Wiley and I made the hieroglyphics by making impressions on beeswax, filling it with acid and putting it on the plates. When they were finished, we put them together with rust made of nitric acid, old iron and lead. And we bound them with a piece of hoop iron, covering them completely with rust. So they went the whole, the whole distance to try to make these things look ancient and to make them look like something similar to the kinds of things that Joseph Smith is talking about as he's doing the Book of Mormon uh, and, and working with what he considers ancient documents. Uh, any thoughts on this section, RFM, before we move? Uh, well, I will tell you one of my big takeaways from this story is that now that we know since 1981 and an article written by Stanley Kimball actually published in the Enzyme magazine that we know that these are hoaxes. It was remarkable to me to see how relatively simple it was to produce plates with writing on them <laughs> that looked ancient, that fooled everybody. With, with rings in them and everything. Yeah. 
Every everybody who writes about this thinks that they're ancient. I don't read anybody saying, "Oh, that's those are fake." Yeah, yeah. The these metal plates seem to be very easily done and uh, have an ancient look to them, don't they? Yes. Huh. So I know that uh, this is uh, Don Vo- Don Dan Vogels Dan Vogels theory about the plates that Joseph Smith made in order to get the witnesses to have something to testify about. And it would seem that it's not as difficult as one might think. Yeah. Yeah. Which also maybe explains how uh, Mormon and Moroni had like thousands of plates in an underground cavern. Yeah. They're mass producing those things. (laughs) All right. So the next section here, the church complicating matters by altering the historical record. So first off the church from the inception of this, propagates a story that these are ancient plates that Joseph Smith started a translation that there are lots of ancient uh, records that will come forth in the last days. Will we have a prophet? We can translate those. The Kinderhook plates is one example of the prophet using um, his divine ability to give us a translation and everything. And we'll get to specifics here, but everything from the church is that these things are legit. And even as this stuff starts to come out, uh, the church doesn't really back down easily. So the first thing I want to say was they complicate it by the history of the church. Adding to the mess was the official publication, History of the Church, written and compiled by several individuals, I think namely B.H. Roberts, right, who essentially put words into Joseph Smith's mouth after he was dead. And not all of what they wrote was factual. The LDS Church perceived this magnificent translation episode to be so important that when it tasked B.H. Roberts with preparing its for, preparing its foremost publication in 1930, History of the Church, it converted Clayton's words into Joseph Smith's first-person voice. The church dedicated eight valuable pages to sharing the story of the Kinderhook plates, likely at least in part because the story bolstered the otherwise unsupported notion that inscribing Egyptian characters onto thin metal plates was a valid method of record keeping to the, in the ancient Americas. And, and I, I still don't, we ought to do an episode on this at some point because I, I, when I first joined the church, I'd heard this criticism that the history of the church really wasn't Joseph Smith's uh, record, but instead it Brigham Young gave others permission um, to take all of these documents and put them in the first person voice of Joseph Smith and act as if it came from his mouth. But historian D. Michael Quinn explained, Joseph Smith's autobiographical history was written in large part after his death by clerks and historians who transformed third-person accounts by others than Joseph Smith into first-person autobiography of Joseph Smith, and that between the first serialized publication of the history, D. Michael Quinn... No, I'm sorry. That, that was a, a something else with him. Anyway, serialized publication of the history, 1840s through 1860s, and the seven-volume edition of the history of the church in the 20th century. There have been thousands of deletions and additions not noted in the text or footnotes. This is certainly all true, and as a historian, I regret the conclusion that such editorial practices have caused. Nevertheless, until quite recently, official LDS history was written by men often of limited education who were not trained in methods of editing or history. It be, it was a deep surprise to me, RFM, 
when I learned that that seven volume set, which you can't see it, but I've got up in the corner of my room, that a large chunk of that, while it appears to be first hand uh, Joseph Smith's words, the reality is it really was a conglomerate of other ideas and sources uh, authored by other folks commenting on the restored gospel and then um, essentially walked back into being Joseph Smith's first uh, hand articulation of, of thoughts and ideas. And, and that really is, in t- by today's standard, again, I'm not going to judge them by their standard, but by today's standard, deeply misleading when you read those seven volumes, six and in an, in an index, I believe. Yeah, there are a number of places where certain liberties were taken and additions made, deletions struck that uh, I'm aware of that I talked about in the apostolic coup d'etat, which tend to support the apostles' claim to authority and leadership in the church and get rid of anybody else who might have an alternate claim. However, in this particular instance, on May 1st, 1843, we do have now William Clayton's diary, and we can see that comparing that to the history of the church, they did take what William Clayton is saying, I did this and I was there in Joseph Smith's house and this happened. And this is what Joseph Smith translated from the Kinderhook plates. And he wrote it down that that does reflect what William Clayton wrote down, though they took it and put it as if it were first person for Joseph Smith. Yeah. And you can see as the church is digging itself a hole, no pun intended, that it is essentially so needing these kinderhook plates to be legitimate and this to be a sign of Joseph Smith's use of divine ability that they have painted themselves into a corner. And we'll see that kind of as time goes on. Um, What we end up running into, and, and this really is, and as you pointed out before, this is very similar to kind of the book of Abraham story, but the church really does dig itself deep in, in uh, positing that these, Uh, Kinderhook plates are legitimate and that Joseph really is doing translation. And then something happens, which is in 1920, a surviving plate from the set turned up at the Chicago Historical Society. And it it seems like that Chicago area seems to be famous, mostly because there was a huge fire uh, either in the late 1800s or early 1900s. I can't remember the year. It's like 1877, something like that. And that fire, there were a lot of valuable things. It was one of the biggest museums in our country, and a lot of valuable things were lost. And a lot of things connected to Mormonism, at least, it seems like. Book of Abraham, these Kendrick plates are kind of stored up in that area. There's an interesting story about how these things got into the uh, into the hands of uh, the Chicago Historical Society. In 1845, a Dr. Joseph Nash McDowell established a college of medicine in St. Louis. The college had a museum of natural history that contained 3000 items among them, antiquities, etc., of our country. WP Harris in his letter of 1855 said that he had heard from a fellow uh, physician that R. Wiley graduated from the college since finding the plates and that Dr. Professor McDowell on surgery has the plates now in his office. It is now apparent that Wiley either sold or gave the Kinderhook plates to McDowell for the museum. McDowell was a Southern sympathizer who left St. Louis to serve the Confederacy as a physician during the Civil War. This made him very unpopular in St. Louis, and when the U.S. Army seized his college in 1861 for use as a prison, 
the 2nd Iowa Reserve Regiment sacked it. The Chicago Historical Society received one of the plates in 1920 as a gift from Charles F. Gunther, a noted collector of historical artifacts. Gunther had acquired it on 15 July 1889 from F.C.A. Richardson, M.D., a member of both the St. Louis and Chicago Academies of Science, and Richardson in turn received it from a Dr. J.W. McDowell, not the same man as Dr. Joseph Ash McDowell, who got it from a soldier in the Second Iowa Reserve Regiment. That's what pointed out in multiple places, folks. I, I don't follow the story along myself. Hey, Bill, Bill, you're breaking yes. up again. Can I just can I synopsize what you're saying Please. while you work on that? Please. Okay. So here's the thing: if I'm trying to appreciate why this is so significant to the church and why they get married in a sense, to the Kinderhook plates. It's number one because, well, it's actually number two because it's also additional evidence that the Book of Mormon plates would be authentic, but mainly because Joseph Smith, although he never did, as far as we know, any kind of entire interpretation or translation of the plates, he did on May 1st, 1843, as recorded in the William Clayton Diary, translate a portion and that's what you talked about before. And I just want to mention this again because it will be important. This is in William Clayton's diary. Um, and actually, I think this is from, this might be from the history of the church because it says, I have translated a portion of them and find they contain the history of the person with whom they were found. Yeah, that's see, that's first person for Joseph Smith. He was a descendant of Ham through the loins of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and that he received his kingdom from the ruler of heaven and earth. So Joseph Smith is claiming to receive some kind of interpretation, at least a partial interpretation about these plates. And that's why the church really gets linked at the hip with these plates and why it is that it's very important for the church to continue to believe that these plates are authentic, which they apparently continue to do in spite of not only one, but two statements from actual witnesses one from 1855 and one from 1878 that you mentioned, saying that these are a hoax. But the church as an institution continues to believe that they're not a hoax in spite of the fact that the people involved in it said they were. Okay, do I better again? No, still having the same problem, my friend. Let me, um, I'm going to try to just completely exit. Folks, stay with us if for whatever reason this gets cut off, but I'll try to completely exit and... Uh, you guys can put the picture up of the plate found. Um, give me some, I'll be back as fast as I can. Okay, and so there's that looks like the plate. So that whole thing that Bill was reading before, what that amounts to is that none of these plates survived. It's almost like the uh, the Book of Abraham, the Egyptian papyri, which were all thought to have been lost in the Chicago fire, which I looked up as apparently 1871, not 77, as I said before. But this really doesn't have so much to do with Chicago as it does with St. Louis, like Bill mentioned, because it was they were put in a museum and because they were thought to be authentic. And then the Civil War happens. The museum ends up getting sacked by soldiers and the plates disappear from history. So we don't know where the plates are. And as things happen in Mormonism, usually if you don't know where the original documents or plates are or papyri is, it's a good thing. But in 1920, one of the plates was recovered. And that, I believe, is a picture of it right there. 
I wanted oh, yeah. to just jump in yeah. on this real quick, RFM, if that's okay. So this picture, um, this is something that we have now at all, courtesy of the Tanners. Um, so they're the ones that originally had these. And this is one of the most common pictures that will be put in different publications, even by the church. And um, and Sandra seemed a little bit better that yet again, the they will never credit her <laughs> and Gerald uh, for this picture. Um that, that they got, that they put out, and then everyone else just, again, they never want to say their names ever. But we have this because Gerald and Sandra Tanner asked for it, and that's the reason why we even have this picture at all. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Thank you very much. Bill's back. All right. How's it sound now? It sounds great so far. Perfect. Let's hope that that continues. Nobody else is on the internet, so that's not the issue. But I completely got out and came back in. So we'll see if this works. Okay. And right. while you were gone, I was just yeah. uh, catching everybody up on mm -hmm. the sacking of the museum, the disappearance of the plates, and then leading into what you had mentioned that one plate was recovered in 1920. So now we have one of these plates, which means that testing can be done on it to determine if it is ancient or modern. Yeah. And the first test... Uh, that happens, I believe, is in 1953. And so if we can bring up the September 1962 improvement era. Same problem with your audio. I'm sorry, Bill, to mention this. Um, I know it's a bad timing. It's horrible timing. Um, I'm sure folks are willing to be patient. That's not the issue. We want this to sound good. So um, give me a couple of minutes and I will be back in the meantime. I'll mention about the two engravers if you want while you're gone. Yeah. You, anything you can do to give information and buy me some time. I'll tap dance. Okay. Okay. So what happens is in the 1950s, there's these two non-LDS engravers who go and inspect this one plate and it's being held by a museum. And the, the thing is that, the museum's not going to allow any destructive testing of this plate to occur. In other words, destructive testing is where you take off a small piece of a plate or a material in order to subject it to additional testing, which can show you things that maybe just looking at it and doing non-destructive testing can tell you. But at this point, these two engravers, not LDS, examine the plates and they give as their opinion that this is engraved. Now, here's the distinction, all right, which I had to learn for purposes of this podcast, which is when you engrave something, you're using a sharp instrument in order to etch out the figures that you see there on the plate in front of you. If you etch something, that's done by acid. So the way that William Fugate in his confession from 1878 described it, as you'll recall, was that they took beeswax, put acid, it's nitric acid in the beeswax, applied the, uh, and of course in the beeswax, they put all these little characters, right? And that's where the acid is in, those indentations in the beeswax. Then they applied the beeswax to the plate. They let the acid do their thing over a period of time. Then they remove it. And now you've got a plate that is etched, chemically etched. So, what the church does in this uh, 1962 Improvement Era article is right down there, if you see the big picture of the plate, right down there to the right and below it 
is a copy of the very brief affidavit from these two engravers. Now, this becomes very significant to the church at this time because William Fugate has said, it's a hoax. I was in on the hoax. This is how we did the hoax. But he says we did it with acid. Now we have two engravers coming in, looking at the plates and saying, no, this wasn't etched. This was engraved with a sharp tool. It wasn't etched with acid. And that's what this um, document says. Are you able to make that any larger at all, Maven, so we can see that? Thank you. So it says June, ah, June 28th. Oh, any bigger at all? 1953. On the above date, we have personally examined a Kinderhook plate in the Chicago, or should I say Chicago? <laughs> Sorry. The Chicago Historical Society. And to the best of our knowledge, this plate was engraved with a pointed instrument and not etched with acid. So there you got two signatures. You got the little affidavit there with the notary public. And boom, this is reproduced in the church periodical. So what they're arguing in this article is that because we now have two engravers saying it was engraved and not etched with acid, and because back in 1878, William Fugate says, well, we etched it with acid and talks about the beeswax. Now the argument for the church is William Fugate was obviously lying about how the etching or engraving was done, because now we've got the two engravers saying different. And therefore, we can dismiss Wilbur Fugate's confession as to how it was found. So this is how they avoid Wilbur Fugate's confession that this was a hoax. Because if you discount part of his story, then the church felt, well, they can discount all of his story completely. So that's what we have there. It looks like, um, I guess this is the, uh, the RFM show at this point. So, Maven, are you still there? Is there anyone here? I am here. I will. Oh, good. I'll put myself in the Bill Real spot. Good. Thank you. So now what happens is that over time, Stanley Kimball is a scholar in the church. And uh, he's actually a very good scholar. And what happens is he's able to talk to Northwestern University. I th well, wherever the plates are held, excuse me, but the, he, he convinces the people who hold the plates to allow this one plate, I'm sorry, the one plate, to be subjected to a little bit of destructive examination. And they do that at Northwestern University. And Stanley Kimball publishes the results of this testing in a 1981 article in the Enzyme magazine. And once they do the testing with atomic microscopes, which they have now in 1981 that they didn't have in 1953, what they find out through a number of different ways is that these two engravers from 1953 were completely wrong. This plate was not engraved, it was etched with acid. And they find that in a number of ways with a, an atomic microscope, you can zoom way in on these little characters. And if something is etched and you look at it really closely with an atomic microscope, you can see the grooves of the etching and especially where it comes across another place that's etched. And if you were to really zoom that up, you could see that there's ridges that go through. As you can imagine, if you were doing it like in sand, right? Also, they found uh, nitric acid residue 
on the plate, which is a big tell. The third thing they found was that this is very, very high grade metal. It doesn't have the slag in it or the impurities that one would expect if it were ancient. So this is a modern production. This is a hoax. And then as the cherry on top, what Stanley Kimball does is he deals with the idea that apparently was circulating that this was a fake copy of the Kinderhook plate. Okay. So obviously when you start feeling the, the walls closing in on your position, when you're an apologist, you've got to find some way to go. All right. And the walls are closing in on this plate that it's looking more and more like a fake. So people are proposing the idea. Well, of course it's a fake. Somebody just did a copy of the plate of the original uh, authentic plate. And so this is just a copy. Well, what Stanley Kimball did in this article is he did away with that argument, too, because he made a remarkable discovery. And what he said was that there is a place at the bottom of the plate. Do you remember that broadside that we had up originally? And by broadside, I mean uh, the, the one that was published in the 1840s that had the reproduction, the facsimiles of both sides of each of the six plates. All right. Yeah, there it is. So if you compare that with the plate from which it's taken, there is a dent at the bottom of this plate, which is not a character. It's a dent. But it ended up being reproduced in this broadside as if it were a character. The person who was making these facsimiles thought the dent at the bottom was itself a character. So they put this on there as a character. But when they saw the plate itself, it's actually a dent. And so what Stanley Kimball re reasons from that is that this must be the authentic plate. Because that's the only way that you can logically reason that if this were the original plate, then that accounts for why the facsimile on the screen shows it as a character. But if someone is going from these facsimiles because that's really the only source they would be going from is the facsimiles that were reproduced. If they're going from that and they see the character at the bottom, they're going to reproduce the character on the plate. It's not just going to be a dent. So this strange um, combination of circumstances ends up convincing Stanley Kimball and myself as well, that not only were the Kinderhook, not only is this plate a modern creation and therefore a hoax, but it also takes care of the argument that this is not really one of the original six Kinderhook plates. He says, absolutely, positively, by this means, we can identify that this really is one of the original plates. All right. How, how do I, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. So hopefully I sound okay. You do so far. Okay, good. Different mic, different headset. We'll see how this goes. Okay. So, um, the, you're talking obviously about this uh, September 1962 improvement era. You're you're comparing it with what Stanley Kimball said in '81. Did we show on pages 22 um, on that uh, improvement era article? Do we have that pulled up? No. Is that the conclusion? Well, I wanted to to speak to that unless you've already covered that. We have not okay. talked about the Perfect. conclusion. So let's make that full screen if we can, Maven. And then let's go to, you got page 22. So that's where they kind of introduce it. Go back one page. Um, I thought this was interesting. True science is our ally. 
<laughs> oh, that's a good one. Yeah, I think the church kind of knew they were going to be talking about the Kinderhook plates and that it was a little messy, and they wanted to make sure that everyone who was reading the magazine knew that they were on the side of science. So there you are. Science is our ally. But go ahead and flip forward one. And once again, to be clear, this is from the 62 Improvement Era article that is still maintaining that these plates are authentic because the engravers say it's etched. No, the engravers say it's engraved, and it's not. Yeah. They get two... They get two, and the way it makes it sound, it's like they get two semi-professional engravers to comment on these. Both engravers say that it is an engraving. It's not an etching. And so the church is like, there, told you. See, we're done. And let's skip ahead to page 58 and 60. That's where it picks up again. Notice, by the way, and as you point out, RFM, this is somewhat normal with magazines back then to start off an article, skip a bunch of pages, and then pick it up again. Um, but if you can get to page t- uh, 58 and 60. Yeah, it's a very triumphant conclusion to this article. And uh, the the article there continues. Um, and then let's go to page 62 where it wraps up. And we'll zoom in on their conclusion. Again, at this point, um, there is at least some kind of doubt out there in on the critical side of things that this is not a legitimate translation. Um, but let's notice here that end. Let's zoom in one more time. No, yeah, yeah, that's good. Zoom in one more time, and then let's go down just a little bit. So the the following is their notarized statement. These are the two in, uh, engravers who are asked to comment on whether they think this is engraved or etched. They say the plate was engraved with a pointed instrument and not etched with acid. Uh, And then their conclusion, this is the church's conclusion in their magazine. The plates are now back in their original category of genuine. What scholars may learn from this ancient record in future years or what may be translated by divine power is an exciting thought to contemplate. This much remains. Joseph Smith Jr. stands as a true prophet and translator of ancient records by divine means, and all of the world is invited to investigate the truth which has sprung out of the earth, not only of the Kinderhook plates, but of the Book of Mormon as well. I don't think they're going to look too fondly at putting those two at the hip together, are they? No, but you can see even then in 1962 that the linkage between the Kinderhook plates as a supportive evidence of the Book of Mormon is implied there in that conclusion. Yeah. So at this point, 1962, the church is still holding on to that these plates are legitimate. Um, I just want to notice here, notice the time lapse between when it is discovered to be a fraud in 1879 because of Fugate's letter, when a plate turns up in 1920, when the church on some level acknowledges the critics' claim suggesting it's a fraud in 1962. But then notice the apologetics around it. And notice their conclusion that their experts have determined it to be an engraving, and hence the Kinderhook plates are still evidence of Joseph Smith's divine mission. This, this is there couldn't be a better example of sunken cost. You have you have put so much into these things that as documents and information start to surface, they have backed themselves into a corner, maintaining that this is evidence of the restoration. Uh, it is evidence of the Book of Mormon being historical. It's evidence of Joseph Smith's divine mission. Right. And it's been over a hundred years since these things were discovered as of 1962. They've got these two engravers. They've got their affidavit. They are good to go. And now it shows that William F- Wilbur, Wilbur Fugates, Wilbur, Wilbur Fugates confession is bogus. Yeah. 
Next test occurs in 1966. This is the first test concluding it was a modern reproduction confirming Fugate's claim. If you'll put up the letter that you got, Maven, uh, from Sandra Tanner. Sandra, thank you very much. Uh, This is the first test done that comes to a different conclusion. So this is a report of physical study of the Kinderhook plate number five, George M. Lawrence, Princeton, May 1966. And just suffice it to say, he essentially comes up with all the same kinds of data that you were pointing to, that this has a nitric acid residue. It looks to be an etching rather than an engraving. And so in 1966, just a few years after that improvement era article, you have the first uh, study that comes back that is uh, lab-based, science-based, and says that that plate is a uh, was a modern reproduction in Joseph Smith's day. Yeah. The then another test happens, and we got a guy we've heard of before. This is Paul Chessman. Oh yes, ancient America speaks. Yeah, yeah. And the same guy in Japan, Kodai America wa Kataru. And Paul Chessman is the gentleman who revealed the 1832 account of the first vision. Yes, he did when it was uh, placed in front of him while he was researching. Yeah. Um, So a much more rigorous study of the Chicago plate was organized in 1969. They must not have liked this 1966 test by Paul Chessman of Brigham Young University. He secured permission from the Chicago Historical Society. By the way, we have a picture there, Paul, uh, if you want to put that up, Maven. Um, He secured permission from the Chicago Historical Society to bring the plate to BYU for exhaustive non-destructive testing. That is analytical test, not involving actual damage to the plate. The result of these tests were compared with previous tests performed in 1960 and 1966. And I don't have that 1960. They might be referring to that 1950 something, but the plate was examined by physicists, engravers, a jeweler, a metal worker, and several photographers with mixed results. The physicists concluded that the plate was acid etched and of non-ancient brass, the others could not agree whether it was etched, engraved, or both. Dr. Chessman concluded, quote, it appears we need to have a destructive analysis for further confirmation. Much more testing needs to be done. And so you see an image there of Paul Chessman. He was much younger when he gave us that 1832 account, maybe, huh? Yes. And usually much more testing needs to be done is indicative of the fact that the testing that's been done so far, you don't like. Yeah. And so finally, we get an actual conclusive test. And this is finally the one that the church, the church accepts as true. And to, to read about this, we have to go to that 1981 article, uh, if you've got that handy, Maven. And this will be uh, page 66 through 70. Uh, this would just be a URL link. Yep. And... Um, Yeah, so that's definitely the article. We just need to find uh, the section here. Um, If you did a search for the word secondly, I think we'll find it. Yeah. So as a result of these tests, we concluded that the plate owned by the Chicago Historical Society is not of ancient origin. We concluded that the plate was etched with acid. And as Paul Chessman and other scholars Uh, have pointed to or pointed out ancient inhabitants would probably have engraved the plates rather than etched them with acid. 
Secondly, we concluded that the plate was made of a true brass alloy, copper and zinc, typical of the mid-19th century, whereas the brass of ancient times was actually bronze, an alloy of copper and tin. Furthermore, one would expect an ancient alloy to contain larger amounts of impurities and inclusions than did the alloy tested. And so we get the final conclusive test that essentially everybody is happy at this point and on the same page, although the church is going to have to eat a little bit of crow, um, but that the plates are a 19th century production uh, that Wilborn Fugate was telling the truth and uh, that the church has now painted itself into a corner. And so the entire point of this 1981 article is to say, oops, sorry, we got it wrong. Any thoughts uh, further on these other tests that were done as well as this uh, most recent one? I mentioned some of those on one of your trips. Perfect. Uh, away from the, the show. But um, I did want to just mention parenthetically that the issue with brass is also an anachronism in the Book of Mormon because it talks about brass plates circa 600 BCE before brass was made. Huh. They had hmm. bronze then. That was the Bronze Age. Brass Age, not yet. It hasn't happened yet, huh? Right. And so gotcha. what apologists do is say, well, it wrote brass, but it really meant bronze. Yeah, I mean, like Kurlam <laughs> and Mammoth, right? Like yes, taper and horse. Who cares? All right. The fallout. Uh, number one, the time has come to admit that the Kinderhook Plate incident of 1843 was a lighthearted, heavy-handed, frontier-style prank or joke as the perpetrators themselves called it, that is Stanley P. Kimball. But that was in a different place. This was June of 1981, and this was at the Mormon Association, or this was within the Mormon Association newsletter. And then uh, number two, so the plates were in fact a fraud, and now the church finally in 1981 admits they have been played. Um, and this is Kinderhook plates brought to Joseph Smith appear to be a 19th century hoax, which is the article we just had. That is Stanley Kimball's words, by the way. So in this 1981 um, article through the church, he acknowledges it. And then also at this Mormon Association newsletter, he admits now is the time we have to finally just come clean and acknowledge that this isn't legit. Before we get to the big story, you got anything else on that section there? Oh, yeah, because Please. the church has maintained for over 100 years now that the Kinderhook plates were real, authentic, ancient stuff. And now the destructive testing has shown conclusively by 1981 in this article that they are a hoax of recent vintage. And therefore, the argument changes. Because remember, the conclusion is always going to be the same. The conclusion is that Joseph Smith was a prophet. Yeah. So now the, the argument has to change. And in this article now, Stanley Kimball floats the theory that really uh, Joseph Smith wasn't fooled. And those couple of lines that he dashed off that are in the William Clayton Journal, they don't really mean anything. And therefore, this was a trap that was set for him by Wilbur Fugate. And it didn't close on him. He avoided yeah. the trap because he must have realized through his prophetic ability that these were hoaxes. So you can see how things change over the course of over a hundred years. Yeah. And the quick thing they do is you, you start to see apologetics begin to blame William Clayton. So William Clayton gets blamed as if he just went rogue and wrote these things down himself. And we don't know for sure this came out of the mouth of the prophet Joseph Smith, mm -hmm. but that is, it's just absurd. And the other thing that you, um, 
oh, there was something else. I'm trying to think offhand. I'm not mm-hmm. going to remember it. I'm not going to remember it. Um, I wanted to, please. I could fill in that part because Don Bradley did a great job. He, he produced a paper in 2011 for FAIR before they were FAIR Mormon and then FAIR again talking about this. He made a wonderful discovery, which we'll get to here in a second. But he does talk about the idea about people trying to throw William Clayton under the bus or saying he's just hearing rumors. You know, he didn't really hear Joseph Smith say this or he wasn't really present when Joseph Smith dictated this. And he makes a number of really good comments in here. First off, if you look at William Clayton's, if you know who William Clayton is, he's Joseph Smith's confidant. He knows all of the stuff, the deep stuff, the secret stuff that's happening in Nauvoo, which is one of the reasons that I believe some of his journals have not yet been released by the church. So he knows a lot of stuff. And he is, let me just read the summary here from Don Bradley's article. Um, But one of the things that really is interesting is that William Clayton in his journal from May 1st, he's there at Joseph Smith's house. He places himself at Joseph Smith's house. And William Clayton has described that if he says it, yeah, you can take it to the bank. He was that good and that reliable. And I think that all church historians recognize that. But he's at Joseph Smith's house. Joseph Smith goes out for a while to see somebody, borrow some money. He comes back and William Clayton is still there. In fact, William Clayton, on the morning of May 1st, 1843, at 10 o'clock, according to his own journal, is sealing Joseph Smith to a plural wife. Which one, RFM? Lucy Walker. Huh, there's another cool name out of Mormon history. If you don't know much about Lucy Walker, you ought to go listen to her story. Um, Please. Yeah, and so he's doing all of these things at Joseph Smith's house. And what Don Bradley says is, yeah, he's not passing on rumors at all. He is writing what he personally observed and what he heard from Joseph Smith. So that's where he takes care of the idea that William Clayton is not reliable or that he's just passing on rumors because that's another place that people want to go to in order to get out of what's becoming a very messy issue. This is a church led by prophet seers and revelators, not one, but 15 at a time. These men have discernment. They have the ability to be seers prophets and revelators. And yet over the course of 101, 102 years, these guys all legitimately thought the Kinderhook plates were real and not a single one of them seemed to catch on to the fact, even in spite as, as evidence is coming out um, specifically with that 1879. And then even some of the early tests done um, this church led by men that have access to uh, discernment seem unable to know the difference between the, the, Kinderhook plates being a historical object that can be translated. Remember, they're prophets, seers, and revelators. Yeah, it's tough. And they messed up. By the way, I I realized why I couldn't find that paragraph summary that Don Bradley made. It's because I was looking in the wrong document. They all kind of are getting messed up Oh, please. Yeah, yeah. Here it is. So uh, this is Don Bradley from his fair presentation. And I apologize, Don, because I am reading the original. Um, So what does this journal entry show? First, that that morning... Clayton sealed a plural wife to Joseph. Second, Clayton was at Joseph's and writing in his journal while Joseph went out, returned, and went out again. Clayton updated updated his journal throughout the day. Clayton had supper with Joseph. 
Clayton was curious about the Kinderhook plates. While, while he was at Joseph's, traced one of the plates into his journal and maybe even there, but soon thereafter wrote a good bit in his journal about the plates. So it's in this context that Clayton writes, quote, President Joseph has translated a portion and says that they contain what he says that they contain. So I think Don Bradley does an excellent job of showing why it is that William Clayton can be relied on and what he says that Joseph Smith translated from the plates. Yeah. So we can stop throwing William Clayton under the bus. These guys just got it wrong. This These plates are not ancient. And uh, somebody tried to pull a fast one on Joseph Smith. And at least for a couple of sentences, it worked. Now, before we get to the really cool insight that you made this week, RFM, I just want to talk for a moment. I'm really grateful to Adam Worthington. Um, that's where this image comes from. Adam made his own replica of the plates. And I just wanted to share... Uh, there's a second image too. Will you throw that up for just a little bit and then go back to the first one? Cause I think it's a much nicer image. Uh, maybe if you got it. Yep. And just so people can see that one as well. It's like it um, could be a key ring. Yeah. And so here's what Adam said. Uh, I asked him how long it took and what the process was. Uh, he couldn't say for certain how long it took since he worked on them in his free time. He said probably about a week. He goes, I ordered 20 gauge brass and traced the outline in a Sharpie. I cut them out with my Dremel cut off. My Dremel cutoff wheel and sanded the edges to remove burrs. Then I traced the symbols in pencil and engraved them with a small diamond bit. I drilled out the hole at the top and soldered a brass ring around them to keep them together. The original ring was made of wire <clears throat> that had rusted, so the brass ring is not accurate. They also should have been etched with nitric acid, but I thought engraving them would be easier and less messy. So just a thanks to Adam uh, for the image that we used to promo the show. He said we could use that image however we liked. And uh, much thanks to him for giving us a beautiful replica, especially if you go back to that first image, Maven. Just to note, um, I just think that those are gorgeous. They are. Uh, you know, those are like three inches long is yeah. all. They're really small. And I was thinking that you could make a pair of earrings maybe out of two of those. You could. That would be kind of cool, wouldn't it? Kinderhook plate earrings. It would make quite the entrance at the party. Adam, you you might be onto something, my friend. Um, okay, with that, let's turn some time over to you, RFM. And thank you, by the way, for bailing me out when I had some audio issues. Um, let's talk for a moment about this incredible discovery of Don Bradley and Mark Ashurst McGee. Okay, so Don Bradley is brilliant. And I'm sure that Mark Ashurst McGee is as well. Mark Ashurst McGee has involved himself very deeply with this issue of the Kinderhook plates. But back in 2011, Don Bradley presents at FAIR a paper and a presentation where he makes a very important discovery. Because once again, we've still got this issue about, okay, so how does Joseph Smith come up with these two lines that William Clayton writes in his journal about the Kinderhook plates? And Don Bradley figures it out. So the first thing that we have to do is we have to go to one of the plates. Do we have the plate that has the image at the top that looks like a boat? Uh, I don't think we have that plate by itself unless maybe there it is. Oh, she does have it. Look at Thank that. you so much. So over there in the upper right-hand corner, we have a facsimile of the plate. And the plate, most of these plates have a line. You see, I have a bunch of characters at the bottom, and then there's a straight horizontal line. And then there's a few other characters which seem to be perhaps more symbolic above them. But see the one that's circled in red. 
that's the one that kind of looks like a boat. And I just say that because it kind of looks like a boat. So if you look at that, and then you see this image in white, which is the same image from up there. And then you go down here. Now we're in the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language. We're in the Abraham Egyptian papers. And so you see a similar looking figure there in the margin. Now, Don Bradley also talks about, and actually Carrie Schertz talked about it last night, as to how they would break apart the scribes or whoever's involved with the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language. And frequently that's just called the Gale, G-A-E-L for abbreviation purposes, which I'm going to start doing. But when I say Gale, I'm talking about the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language. Okay. They frequently break these down into component parts. The hieroglyphs from the papyri, which they're writing in the margin here. And so if you understand that, then this in the margin of the gale actually makes even more sense out of this figure of the boat from the top of the plate. But the discovery that Don Bradley made is that if you find this image in the gale, and let me go back to the gale and let me make it really clear what that is. The, the gale, the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language is exactly what it says. It's a grammar and alphabet, or we might think of it as a lexicon. We might call it a dictionary nowadays. But the idea is that in these margins, they have different characters, most of which are taken from the papyri. There are some exceptions to that. But they have these characters. And then next to the character, what they have is a pronunciation of how that character should be pronounced in Egyptian. And here you have ha, u, ha, and I can't quite read it. But what we have there is, and if we can, is there a, um, a text of that in, I was going to say English, but in type, so we don't have to try and read this? Yeah, let's see. Let's see, can we get this? I can, a, I can yeah, type I can. in Book of Abraham, and if somebody knows what verses it comes from. Well, here it is. It's not actually in the Book of Abraham. Okay. It's Sorry. in the Gale. It's okay, because the Gale is largely not associated with anything that's in the Book of Abraham. And once again, there are some exceptions. It's a, it's a different document that's part of these Abraham Egyptian papers. But here we have this image, and hopefully this is going to be really helpful. Joseph translated a character on the kinderhook plates by matching it to a similar symbol on the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language. And there's the reference to Don Bradley, the discoverer of this. And President Joseph has translated a portion solving the mystery of the kinderhook plates. That's the name of his paper from 2011. So there's a kinderhook plates on the left. There, second row down, second plate from the left. You see, that's the one that has that image at the top with the red arrow that goes down to show it enlarged as the boat. Here's the boat to the right in blue going down to its image. Once you take out all those lines and break it down to its basic component part, there you have it. And it kind of looks like a boat. Then finding that over there in the gale and making that match. Now, can we enlarge what's the print is on the bottom, Maven? This is not this is this is critical. when it's a slide, um, but I can try to work on that in the background for a second. Okay, well, let me go ahead and read it. So, from William Clayton's journal, we've read this before, and actually, I can read this here. I can is see that, it too if you want me to. Can read you? It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you? So, the one on the left or the one on the right? 
left first because that's okay. from William Clayton's journal. This is what he says Joseph Smith translated. Yep. He was a descendant of Ham through the loins of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is in blue. And then end that he received his kingdom from the, and then in red, ruler of heaven and earth. Right. And so Don Bradley was brilliant enough to look at this, see that, and compare it with what the interpretation is of that symbol in the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language. And you will see that the similarity between the interpretation of that symbol in the Gale is quite striking to what William Clayton said that Joseph Smith translated from the Kinderhook plates. Oh, thank yeah. you, Maven. And so you end up with ho e opa and definition. That's, that's, yeah. And that's the uh, the way that this is supposed to be pronounced. Pronounced. Yeah. Pronounced. And then it says honor by birth, and then in blue, kingly power by the line of Pharaoh, and then possession by birth, one who reigns upon his throne universally. And then in red, possessor of heaven and earth, and then end of the blessings of earth. Yeah. So what Don Bradley reasons is that it was this character that Joseph Smith saw on the plate, the Kinderhook plate. Then he went to the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language, which was from 1835, remember? So this is in 1843, eight years later. But he goes to that and he uses that as a key to translate, and the one character that he finds, or at least that he mentions, that is similar between the two, the Kindred Plates and the Gale, is this one character. And therefore, he goes to the translation from the Gale and uses that in order to interpret this character from the Kinderhook Plates. And that's why he comes up with what William Clayton says there in his journal. Now, I hope that part is clear enough so far. But then... After Don Bradley makes this discovery, he finds something else out that clinches it for him because he has now, based upon this evidence, hypothesized what Joseph Smith did, that he went to the Gale in order to compare it to the Kinderhook plates for purposes of making this partial translation. Now, if we can go back to that article, the letter to the New York Herald that we read earlier. If we have that, uh, Maven, I'll let you talk about that. This is a, a letter. The newspaper. Yeah, the newspaper. Yeah. This is a letter that was written from a non-Mormon, but a person who was apparently friendly to the Mormons. He lived in Nauvoo. We don't know his name because he identifies himself in the letter only as a Gentile. But the entire tone of his letter is very laudatory about the Mormons. It doesn't sound antagonistic at all. It was written May 7th, 1843 by this individual, and it gets published May 30th, 1843, in the New York Herald. And so here's that article again. Now, let me let me read this really quickly, right? He talks about the set of plates being found. By the way, he says Pike County as opposed to Kinderhook County, so that is apparently in error, or at least it's a, a difference between other accounts. They're dug out of a large mound. They're 15 feet from the summit, and he talks about the description of the plates. Then he says this, the plates are evidently brass and are covered on both sides with hieroglyphics. They were brought up and shown to Joseph Smith. He compared them in my presence. This is direct testimony being related here. He compared them in my presence with his 
Egyptian alphabet. So here we have an eyewitness talking about the fact that Joseph Smith did exactly what Don Bradley had intuited and theorized, that he did go to his Egyptian alphabet to compare with the Kinderhook plates. He compared them in my presence with his Egyptian alphabet. Oh, and here he gets something incorrect, which he took from the plates from which the Book of Mormon was translated. All right. And I think Don Bradley correctly uh, assumes that this is a guy who's not a member of the church. So he was thinking Book of Mormon plates when actually it was from the Book of Abraham translation project. And they are evidently the same character. Evidently the same characters is the key line. It shows that there was some similarity between what was on those Kinderhook plates and what was on the uh, the the papyri, or not papyri, but the Egyptian alphabet. And then also just to note, um, Kinderhook is a small village in Pike County. So oh. just FYI. And then also just to add one other document, I don't know if you were going to go into it. I can stay away from it if you were, but it is a letter from Parley P. Pratt and Orson Pratt May 7th, 1843 to John Van Cott. Do you have that? If you don't, I'll read it. No. Okay. The So this is their letter. Quote, the gentlemen who found them were unconnected with this church, but have brought them to Joseph Smith for examination and translation. A large number of citizens here have seen them and compared the characters with those of the Egyptian papyrus, which is now in this city. I have no time for particulars, but you will hear more soon on this subject. I must now notice your letter. Two of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon have been cast off from the church for some misconduct, but have been denied their testimony. We hope they will be restored again soon. The other Martin Harris is still in the church. Again, compared the characters with those in the Egyptian papyrus. So there's another mention that that comparison happened. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So now I see from some of the comments that some of the listeners are anticipating where this is going. When I called Don Bradley, actually he called me and I was glad he did the other day, yesterday, because I lost his phone number and I was trying to call him, but I didn't have it anymore. So he called me fortunately. And I talked to him because this idea started occurring to me about the relationship between the Kinderhook plates and the book of Abraham translation. Obviously there's a connection because Don Bradley's talking about the Gale being used by Joseph Smith in order to translate this one character. And I remember talking with Don and saying, hey, Don, you ever have the experience of coming up with a brilliant idea only to find out that somebody else has already published on it? So this is the brilliant idea that I came up with that I then found out that he published on. And he knew about this too. He, he was aware of the implications of this. And he and Mark Ashurst McGee wrote a paper that was published in a volume a couple years ago where they almost come out and say it. But here's the, the deal, okay? There's the book. What's it called? Producing Ancient Scripture. I think Brian Halklid was one of the His name's on there too. Yes. So there's a chapter about the um, uh, Kinderhook plates. So here's the thing. The thing is this. If you look at what Hugh Nibley said about the Abraham Egyptian papers, including the grammar and alphabet of the English language, this has been something that's been going on for decades because this is a death blow to Joseph Smith. Joseph death, Smith death blow, death blow to Joseph yeah. Smith. Yeah, because Joseph Smith cannot be involved in the production of the Gale or the Abraham Egyptian documents. He cannot be because even the dullest person on the face of the planet can recognize 
that the alphabet and grammar is exactly what it's called. It's an alphabet and grammar. It is a translation or a purported translation of Egyptian characters with an English translation. And they don't match. They're not even remotely similar. Egyptologists can read these symbols now and they have nothing to do with the translation that's put next to them. This is why Hugh Nibley and John Gee following him have done everything they can to get Joseph Smith out of the room and away from these translation papers. And they've had to come up with a theory, ridiculous as it might sound, that what happened here is that in July of 1835, Joseph Smith gets the papyri. He dashes off a translation through Revelation, maybe the seer stone, maybe not. But the entire text of the book of Abraham, as we have it today, was completed by Joseph Smith in July of 1835. They have to do that because now later on in that same year, we get references to the Egyptian alphabet and grammar to these types of documents being worked on. So their theory is this, to get Joseph Smith away from these documents, they theorize that this is something that the scribes of Joseph Smith did. When Joseph Smith wasn't around, it's a rainy day, they've got nothing else to do. So they have the text of the book of Abraham according to the theory, which is not correct, I believe, but they already have the text of the book of Abraham. They've got the papyri. So they engage in this exercise of trying to figure out where the text of the book of Abraham came from on the papyri. And they write down these, these uh, characters next to passages from the book of Abraham. And they do all this other stuff with the grammar and alphabet of the English language, which Joseph Smith cannot be anywhere near. Otherwise, it shows conclusively that he could not translate Egyptian because the translations have nothing to do with Egyptian. Are we clear so far on that? Yeah. Okay. So this is the reverse engineering theory, which they still have to hold to because it's the only way to keep Joseph Smith away from it. We blame it on the scribes. Whenever Joseph Smith gets in trouble, you blame it on the scribes. Whenever the church gets in trouble about Joseph Smith's dictation of the book of Mormon and how he did it, then we blame it on the artists. It's always somebody else's fault. So the problem now that occurs to me and occurred to Don Bradley more than 10 years ago and Mark Ashurst McGee is this. If Joseph Smith was not involved in the grammar and alphabet of the English language, which he cannot be according to Hugh Nibley and John Gee. And let me say it this way. The, yes. the, the missing scroll theory, again, the two primary theories we have missing scroll and catalyst other than a fraud the missing scroll theory depends on John it depends on Joseph Smith not having a familiarity or a trust in or an appreciation of the gale. Right. And let me just go ahead. Thank you for adding that in here. Please. Let me go ahead and underscore that because the missing scroll theory is based upon the idea that Joseph Smith really could translate Egyptian into English and do it correctly by the gift and power of God. So, the missing scroll theory says, well, there's a missing scroll or a missing part of this scroll. And on it, an Egyptian is actually the book of Abraham. And if an Egyptologist today looked at it, they would translate it. The missing part, right? Conveniently missing. If they looked at that, then they would translate it from the Egyptian into English. And it would be the book of Abraham. Okay. So that missing scroll theory is all based on the idea that Joseph Smith could translate Egyptian. Thank you for that. So then the question becomes... If Joseph Smith has nothing to do with the grammar and alphabet 
of the English language. And this is really something that his scribes did without his, his being present or being involved in any way. Why is it that eight years later, when Joseph Smith is presented with the Kinderhook plates, he goes to the grammar and alphabet of the English, of the Egyptian language and uses it as if he feels it's authoritative. In the very way that Guy and Molstein can't have it happen, which is this symbol equals these kinds of ideas. Would you explain that a little bit more for me? Yeah. So with the symbol on the left side and the meaning on the right, John Gee and Kerry Molstein in the missing scroll theory need those two to be disconnected. They can't have this symbol, meaning that thing, and Joseph Smith trusting that that translation of that symbol. And yet what we have is Joseph Smith actually looking at that symbol and putting those exact same ideas into his translation of the Kinderhook plates. Right. And what it shows is that Joseph Smith considered the grammar and alphabet of the English language as authoritative for use in the translation of another document, i.e. a Kinderhook plate, that has a symbol on it that is similar to a symbol in the grammar and alphabet of the English language. And and you have, again, I'm going to chuckle, again, no offense to Don Bradley, no offense to Mark Ashurst McGee. You guys are brilliant. I'm watching, what, just so you know. Yeah, please. Um, what you did was you you solved a little tiny problem over there. The Kinderhook plates, nobody was going to leave the church over the Kinderhook plates. Um, but what you did by making this discovery is you have shown to some sort of conclusiveness that um, the book of Abraham, according to John Gee and Kerry Molstein's reconciliation of it and that translation is broken. Anytime John Gee and Kerry Molstein stand up and say there's a missing scroll, everyone in the room should shout this point about the Kinderhook plates and force them to address it. Yes. And by the way, um, this is something that Don Bradley and Mark Ashurst McGee did that paper for that book about uh, discovering, producing, producing ancient scripture. Producing we, ancient scripture, yeah. And do we have the page from their article in there about the Kinderhook plates? I've got it here and Maven's got it right there. Okay, great. And if we can take this one that is on the left, the big one, if we can just blow that up at the top a little bit. Is there any way to do that, Maven? If not, no biggie. She's amazing. We'll see if she can. It'll take me a second to do it. Okay. In the meantime, I can start reading it while she's working on it. Okay. Can you read the last line in the top paragraph? Yep. Some have outright dismissed the relevance of these documents in understanding Smith's translation of the book of Abraham. And it says footnote number 275. Right. And so, of course, it's talking about some have outright dismissed the relevance of these documents, the Abraham Egyptian documents, including the Gale in understanding Smith's translation of the book of Abraham. Can I read the sentence right before that? Uh, You can do whatever you want. Many, if not most Mormon scholars have been skeptical about Smith's involvement in the production of the curious Egyptian alphabet documents, which do not reflect modern Egyptological understanding. And that one has footnote number 274. And what is the footnote, Bill? The footnote, 274, is Kerry Molstein's article, and 275 is John Key. Yes. So <laughs> they are, they're being very nice here, putting it in a footnote, but they're referencing John Key and Kerry Molstein as those who dismiss Joseph Smith's involvement with the Abraham Egyptian documents and say they don't have anything to do with the translation of the Book of Abraham. Then he goes ahead and he quotes something from Sam Brown 
which I don't know that we need to get into for purposes of this podcast, but he disagrees with something that Sam Brown says along the same lines. And then he says, however, there's the, the final line there or final paragraph. However, Smith's autonomous use, in other words, he does it of his own volition, right? It's his idea. However, Smith's autonomous use of the Egyptian alphabet book, six months earlier, he's talking about something that Sam Brown had talked about happening in November of 1843. He says that he considered it, oh, six months earlier in the translation of the Kinderhook plates shows that he considered it a legitimate translation tool. Joseph Smith considers the Egyptian al alphabet a legitimate translation tool. Perhaps it was Smith who brought the document back to Phelps' attention. Smith's reliance on the book to translate a portion of the Kinderhook plates thus calls for a reconsideration of Smith's relationship with this and the other Egyptian study documents. There are three sources that say that when these Kinderhook plates were brought to Joseph, that he cons he uh, considered the Egyptian language documents from the Book of Abraham, uh, namely the Gale. And one of those sources points to the characters being similar or the same, right? And so what you end up with is, and then you've got Don Bradley and Mark Ashurst McGee's connecting the dots on the actual symbol and its similarity in translation. And what I think you end up with is John Gee and Kerry Molstein's missing scroll theory has, has just been decimated. <laughs> it's gone, but, but it gets worse than that RFM. I know because I was thinking <laughs> about this and I was thinking this is a great idea. And then I got mildly disappointed because somebody had seen it before me, but that happens in every, you know, researcher's life. It's a very common thing, but then so let me just underscore this, okay? There is no reverse engineering by scribes. There is Done. no stuff happening. Put a fork Joseph in Smith it. doesn't know about it, okay? <laughs> Joseph Smith knows about it and thinks that it is valid yeah. to the point that it's authoritative enough for a translation. We've said that before. And I thought that was going to be it. So this morning, I'm talking with you about it. We've talked more about this episode than maybe any other episode because things keep bubbling up. And you said, you said to me, so that explodes the missing scroll theory, which I believe it does. And, but you said, so all that's left. Yeah. All that's that left all is the catalyst is the catalyst theory. Yeah. And so then I'm at the gym this afternoon and I get done working out and I see a text from you and it says, wait a second. The catalyst theory is destroyed too by this discovery. I'm in the Costco parking lot and I've been thinking about this episode all day and going over the outline and thinking this through. And I thought to myself, I said, wait a minute. If Joseph Smith is consulting his, his Egyptian symbols and their meaning to come up with a translation for the Kinderhook plates, then the catalyst theory is shit too. <laughs> so they're both done. They're both gone. Because the catalyst theory says the, the papyri means nothing. The papyri means nothing. All, all it is is Joseph is just completely making it up. Right. The catalyst theory says that Joseph Smith is not actually translating real Egyptian into real English because the evidence kind of doesn't support that. And now it really doesn't support it. But instead, the papyri serves as a catalyst to Joseph Smith that even though he thinks apparently, or at least he's presenting as translating characters from Egyptian into English, actually, that's not what's happening. No, that's not what's happening. What's happening is that Joseph Smith thinks he's doing that. But really what's happening is that God is 
beaming down into his brain a revelation of an actual ancient source related to Abraham, which, and this is how it's explained that even though it doesn't match the papyri at all, it can still be a legitimate, inspired, revealed, ancient text about Abraham. Except it isn't. Because <laughs> now, now Bill is so brilliant, he thinks, well, wait a second. If that's what the catalyst theory is, which is what it is, then this blows that up too because Joseph Smith is not acting like it's a revelation. He is yeah. acting like it is an actual uh, translation from this character, right? From the kid hook plates and getting it from the Gale. And so it's not just that Joseph Smith is presenting this way. He's actually doing it this way. Yeah. We can actually see him doing it thanks to Don Bradley and Mark Asher's <laughs> McGee, though I think Don Bradley is the one who actually saw this first. Um, we can see him doing it. So we know that he's approaching this as an actual translation from one character into English and another character into English. Therefore, the catalyst theory has to go out the window too because it is not an inspired authentic text being revealed to Joseph Smith. It's actually a translation that he's attempting. Remember, the church wants you to paint a picture that Joseph is staring at a bunch of Egyptian symbols and revelation is flooding into his head about what to dictate to the scribe, not necessarily like, Hey, this symbol means this, or this symbol means this, but staring at the collective symbols on the page and God is giving him a revelation. But if Joseph Smith instead is picking out particular symbols, connecting them to certain meanings, and then referring to back to that document, when he does another translation, it means that the way we need it to be framed for a catalyst theory is absolute bullshit. I think that, that about sums it up. <laughs> now, hold on. I, I think it gets even a little worse. Um, and here's what I wanted, uh, wanted to end on. Uh, and by the way, I'll just say, if Don Bradley's in there, and I saw him make comments, if Don, you're still here, I'd love to know, do you buy the catalyst theory or do you buy the missing scroll theory or do you have a third theory? And I'd love for you to at least state what your two cents is. I did reach out to Mark Ashurst McGee and he pointed me to the page we just read and said, that's my thoughts on the subject. And what Mark seems to be saying in those pages is, I don't agree with uh, Kerry Molstein or John Gee. I think they're both wrong. Their theories depend on things that this data does not support. But what Mark doesn't do is address how this also causes the catalyst theory to fail. And so I would love to hear from him as well on whether he can buy the catalyst theory, knowing what he knows about the Kinderhook plates. Now, please, go ahead. I was just going to offer that uh, pretty soon here we'll be going to phone calls, and if Don wants to call in on the line, he can do that. We we'll yes. try and put his uh, call at the at the front of the line. But yeah, so that's that's all I was going to say about that. And in, in fact, again, we could we could give him the link. He could show on, even if he doesn't want to put his face on. It could just be his voice, but he could call in as well. And then I wanted to finish just talking about reasons for not translating the Kendrick plates. Joseph Smith gets uh, two sentences in. And he stops. And we have heard lots of ideas suggested. Uh, one is the report never came back from the antiquities societies. Joseph said he wouldn't translate unless he sent it off to these three places and got word back. And, and let me ask you this, RFM. If you're a prophet, seer, and revelator who has a past history 
of translating ancient records written on metal plates, why do you need to send a de- depiction of these Kinderhook plates off to an- uh, antiquarian societies at Philadelphia, France, and England? Would you, as a lawyer, would you mind t- walking me through what your thoughts are on why somebody might do that? Oh, sure. And I don't know if this has to do with being a lawyer or anything, but what I thought was if Dan Vogel is correct, that Joseph Smith manufactured some plates to look ancient with writing on them and use those to have witnesses look at them and then get taken back by the angel or disposed of in some way that they're not found again. And you do that in 1829. And then 14 years later, some fellow that you don't know has claimed to find a batch of plates under the ground that are apparently ancient and that have these engravings on them in an ancient language. And they get presented to Joseph Smith. If you're Joseph Smith, I can imagine that that would put you in a rather delicate position. If you faked your plates, and someone else brought you plates, you're going to know that this probably isn't real. And you're going to have a lot of skepticism and you're going to really not want to touch these things with a 10 foot pole. I would think there would be a lot of hesitation because it has all the trappings of a trap. Yeah. Yeah. But, but think of it this way though, right? So um, let me ask, let me, let me Take another step further. A couple other reasons for why he wouldn't have translated. He was deeply busy with other things. I saw in Book of Mormon Central, uh, they had an article that pointed at, you know, Joseph Smith running for president. Uh, He's got, uh, he's entertaining several guests in his journals. There's records of this. He's holding court, attending business. getting married to half the city. Yeah. He's he's attending business and religious meetings, overseeing economic transactions and much, much more. Only one brief mention of the Kinderhook plates is made. Then there's the idea that this would have taken months to get back. Maybe nothing came from these antiquarian societies. And eventually Joseph dies essentially a year later. And so maybe we just ran out of time. Maybe he would have gotten to them. But what I wanted to point out is this first thing, which is he stuck between a rock and a hard place. Because if he claims they're fake, he has to be able to suggest why. If he, you know, he has to go, the spirit of discernment tells me, blah, 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 you know, but maybe they're not fake. He doesn't know that for sure. If he claims they're real and attempts to translate them and these guys come out later and say they're fake, he's caught. If he claims he can't translate them, then the members of the church wonder the why the hell not, because he is a prophet, seer, and revelator who's tra- translated records before. The If he's half as intelligent as I think he is. He's going to come to the conclusion that the only safe bet is to find something similar in something he knows nobody can translate, to offer a couple of sentences of translation, and to move on. And that's exactly what he did. It was the only play he had. Any other play would look um, would look weird to some segment of people watching him waiting for him to do this. He He did the only thing he could do which was find a symbol in the Egyptian stuff and make a similar translation of that and then walk away from never touching them again. And you may be correct about that because he was in a delicate position. He responds delicately to the situation. I mean, even if he thinks that they're, they're fake, can he really be in a position? And I know he could, 
but talking about from the position of the audience who's watching the members of the church, can he really denounce these as fakes without somewhat undercutting his own production of plates from fit, uh, 14 years earlier? He suspects they're not real because he pulled the trick off before anybody else did it. So he can't translate them either. He can't give a 1200 page document because he knows these other guys out there might be willing to come forward and say this was not real. Right. Yeah. 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 I wrote the, uh, and I'll say it one more way, just so people are clear. Let me, here's my conclusion. I wrote out. If in fact the book of Mormon was a 19th century production, Joseph Smith, of course, would know that any surfacing of metal plates with etchings would have had his suspicion because he has literally written the book on this trick, sending them off to the antiquity societies is another hint at his suspicion that they weren't ancient. A person with real metal plates with writing on them who translated them in reality is more likely to believe another set of plates with writing. A person who created a fake story and even a set of plates with writing is going to be extremely suspicious of another set of plates surfacing. If he wonders, are these real and in the language already known, he can't afford to translate them under that condition. The reason for sending them off to the antiquarian societies, if they come back and say, that's a real language, it's Kapupu, which is an Indian tribe that we already know the dialect of, he's caught. So he can't do that either. Um, if he suspects, if he, I'm sorry, let me, say, let me say this again. If he wonders, are these real and in a language already known, he can't afford to translate them under that condition. If he suspects, are these a scam set up to make me fail? He can't afford to translate them under that condition either. And if he refuses to translate them, he will begin to cause doubt in all of the believing members of the church. He can't afford to, trans to, to handle it in that condition either. What if he doesn't translate at all? Doesn't he have a gift? He perhaps feels he can't leave them alone either. He does the only thing he can do give them the smallest sort of partial translation as possible and hinge it on a symbol that is real and within a legitimate document, according to him, what he tells the people that can't be translated outside of the translation that you, the guy have provided. I think you did a wonderful job of writing that out, Bill. Yeah. So there you are. The Kinderhook plates is the death knell of Joseph Smith's prophetic work with the book of Abraham. And once you take that leap, it's just a little hop, skip and a jump to the whole thing being a fraud. I don't want to speak for Don Bradley here, but my perception, my perception is, is that there was an attempt that was made in order to save Joseph Smith's prophetic ability vis-a-vis -vis the Kinderhook plates by instead of making it a revelatory translation, making it a secular translation, i.e. his going to the Gale to find that one symbol that matched the one on the plates and giving the interpretation that we've talked about. The irony may be that in order to save Joseph Smith's reputation in relation to the Kinderhook plates, it's completely exploded his reputation in relation to the Book of Abraham. Yeah. So, and, and by the way, let me just make this note because I, I talked to you this morning. I wanted to do this. I have always told you, and I've told all the folks who, who listen to us expound on these things, apologists want you to keep every one of these issues in a vacuum 
They want you to deal with the Kinderhook plates by itself. They want you to deal with the Book of Abraham by itself. But Mormonism is so contradictory at every turn across issues that you really have to maintain the ability with the apologists to hold their feet to the fire to all of it collectively at once. So when folks bring up the Book of Abraham, you absolutely should bring up the Kinderhook plates. And when people bring up the Kinderhook plates, you should absolutely bring up the Book of Abraham. Very good. On that note, should we go to phone calls? Let's do it. I'll put the banner out. If somebody wants to try to quickly uh, call in, and I'm just trying to connect here. It's right here, Don. It's up there on the screen. It's scrolling at the bottom. Yeah, I, I did put it up also. I just wanted Perfect. to know that he's trying to call in. So yeah. Perfect. Oh, this is going to be a little tricky. I'm going to have to go back to my other device, and I'm hoping that this will all work for at least a few minutes of phone calls. Um, I'm going to put this headset down and it'll give a second. We're just going to have a little bit of quiet for a moment. I need to get uh, some of those calls in and switch over the audio so that we can get Don uh, if he calls in. Okay, Don, if you're listening, when you call in, don't use my real name by accident, okay? We haven't rehearsed this. Don't pull a John DeLynn. Okay, so... Bill is now changing his um, his stuff. I'm describing what's going on in the screen here. And hopefully we'll have other people call in as well. So, Don, if you want to call in, just go ahead. And we'd like to hear your thoughts about this. The interesting thing about the article I thought with Mark Ashurst McGee that Don did that we read the comment from or the lines from. I think we have they, Don right now. Is that they obviously see the issue and they walk up to the edge of the issue, but they don't put the fine point on the issue that we've attempted to tonight. And perhaps that's because they disagree with it. I don't know. We'll have Don Bradley tell us here in a few minutes. Don, is that you? Can you hear me? Can you guys hear him? Fuzzily. Yeah, you are a little fuzzy, but that's oh, really? in my ear as well. Yeah. But but please continue. Oh, okay. Hold on. Let me, um, I'm going to the headset. Hold on. Yeah, I think we had the same problem on the phone yesterday when we were talking, Don. Yeah. Um, can you hear me okay? It's better. Hold on. Okay. Hello? Yeah, please proceed. Hey there. So, yeah, I mean, what I would want to say offhand right now would be pretty minimal. I I wasn't expecting to be put on the spot. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I think like Mark, I think that the most of what I would want to say would already just be what was said in the actual paper. Um, like I, hey, I Don, yeah, you would agree though. Yeah. This, this discovery is problematic for both the catalyst theory and the missing scroll theory. I, I would have to think through more of what you said about the catalyst theory. Um, I, I do think that it, um, so, well, one question I would have about what you're saying about the missing scroll theory, I mean, I, I don't subscribe to that theory, but um, the actual character um, that's in the Gale, I can't recall whether that is one of the characters that's actually on the papyrus. Um, so I, I'm not sure how much it would or wouldn't bear on that theory. Um, and when you're saying that, and when yeah, you're saying I, that, Don, Don, can you hear me? 
Yeah. Uh, and I'm just doing this for the audience. I think I understand what you're saying, but you correct me if I'm wrong. When you're saying it may not be a character that's actually on the papyrus, you're saying it definitely is in the grammar and alphabet of the English language, but it may be one of those relatively oh, few. in the Gale. Yeah, those relatively yeah. few characters that Joseph Smith appears to have either invented or got from some source other than the papyrus. Right. So, so there are some characters on the Gale that are not on the papyrus. So if they, I don't recall whether that character is on the extant papyrus. If it is, uh, then that, yeah, I don't, I don't know that the situation with the Kinderhook plates would change it that much. I, I don't know. I would have to think through that more. I mean, so, so I plan to do future work on the Book of Abraham. It's not something that I'm immersed in right now. Um, I have done some work on Book of Abraham topics, like the translation timeline and so on. Um, uh, but I, I wouldn't want to draw conclusions that are too hard and fast at this point about the Book of Abraham. Yeah. Um, other than to say that, yes, I, I mean, I think that um, I would use a different word than what um, you used regarding the Gale, um, uh, Justice Smith's view of the Gale. I would say that his uh, his evident use of it for translating from the Kinderhook plates shows that he takes it seriously. I wouldn't say necessarily authoritative, um, but but if it's not something that he takes seriously at all then there's no reason that he's going to be comparing the Kinderhook plates to it. So it does suggest, as Mark and I said in that chapter, uh, it does suggest that Joseph Smith's relationship with the Gale needs to be looked at more closely. Don, can I ask you a question here? We're going to set aside sure. the, the impact that this may or may not have on the catalyst theory because it's kind of hitting you right now and you want to think about it some more. Sure. I understand that. But as to the missing scroll theory, would you agree that this evidence that you mm -hmm. discovered from the Kinderhook plates and Joseph Smith's reliance on the Gale would tend to shoot a large hole in the hole of the missing scroll theory and the reverse engineering theory that's part and parcel of that? So is the argument for that that, I mean, so, so walk me through the logic of um I, I was watching but i was also multitasking so <laughs> my you were body, doing what while you were um, watching through <laughs> so multitasking well, um, multitasking so okay. um yeah so so what difference do you see the kinderhook plates making i mean like i said that it's not a theory that's not a theory that i subscribe to uh but offhand i'm not certain that the kinderhook plates it's themselves make a difference to it here well here's what i'm thinking okay is that if joseph smith relies uh, or thinks that the um uh the gale is important for his translation of that one character you identified from the kinderhook plates then that would suggest that yeah. the theory that the scribes separate and apart from joseph smith later revert attempted to reverse engineer the text of the book of abraham into right. And so this this find of yours would tend to refute that theory. Is that correct? Well, yeah, it, it would certainly suggest that the scribes weren't 
Like, like the idea that the scribes kind of went rogue and did something separate from Joseph wouldn't make sense. I mean, I already think that that idea doesn't make sense in relation to the documents that we have. Um, but no, this would further indicate that Joseph Smith wasn't treating the Gale as something that was just made up by other people who were doing it on their own. And if I'm not mistaken, the missing scroll theory requires the opposite of that. Gee and Molstein both have posited that um, Joseph Smith isn't uh, reliant on that document, and it was an afterthought by the scribes who helped him, as RFM said, trying to figure out what Joseph Smith was doing after the fact when Joseph Smith's going back to it for another translation seems to support his reliance on the document. It definitely supports that he takes it seriously. So, so I would see that. Um, I mean, so, so I think that the theory that's definitely ruled out is the idea that it's just the scribes. I think Nibley had suggested that the scribes were uh, trying to compete with Joseph, even, uh, which I don't know how much sense that makes. But like, where's that in um, the historical record, really by the way, Don? Don, where's that in the historical record? <coughs> That I'm oh, smiling that as idea? I say this. No, yeah. that doesn't show up in the historical record at all. Right. No, Hugh Nibley co- right. totally you know, made that, up that, that scenario. Theory. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He did, yeah. And, and so, I mean, the, the question regarding Miguel, and, and, and by the way, so I have not yet read Dan Vogel's new book. I plan to, right? Um, and I'm also not up to date on what um, people on the apologetic side of Book of Abraham have written. I've got other... I've been doing a couple articles on uh, Joseph Smith's relationship with Van Alder uh, that are going to be published, and other th- I've got other things. <laughs> so I'm I've fallen behind on Book of Abraham stuff. So you have to forgive me for that, right? So my understanding of um, Gee's position is, and Neil stands, is that um, Joseph Smith translates all of the Book of Abraham. Right, like all of the texts that we have um, published ever, right? All, all the all of the currently known Book of Abraham, he translated all of that in Kirtland, and then um, you know he and then the scribes, or or, or he and the scribes. I, I don't know if does he say it was just the scribes, like Nibley said, I or or not. I, I as far as I know. Um, like the basis of his opinion is not who who created, who like reverse engineered it. It's just the idea that it was reverse engineered. So that requires then that all of the Book of Abraham texts would be translated up front. Yes. And then, you know, Justice Smith and the others would go kind of match it to the characters. And, um, and just, a, I, just a note, Don. Just a note, Dan Vogel said the yeah. character is in part one of the alphabets and relates to the Amenhotep papyrus. I've put that papyrus, I believe mm-hmm. it's that papyrus, I put it up on the screen, and there are several instances where that symbol seems to somewhat show up. Um, I saw another one here somewhere. Can you see the screen from where you are, Don? Here's another one down here. Oh, 
computer. Yeah, no big deal. It's just that on that papyrus, there are several instances where that sort of shape seems to show up. Um, it, namely, the first time I saw it was kind of in that top left corner. Um, and so, again, what we would have is a specific spot on the papyrus where Joseph Smith is grabbing a symbol, assigning a meaning to it, and that would run deeply counter to the catalyst theory. And again, I understand that this papyrus isn't necessarily the Book of Abraham papyri, but Joseph Smith, when working with these various papyri, seems to legitimately see a connection between specific symbols and a translation that he is receiving, as he claims, through revelatory um, procedures or practices. Right. So, um, so as I've been looking at the screen, I didn't actually see. Um, maybe, maybe on my screen, it's not in sync with where you are right now. I, I didn't see that. No sweat. In any case, right now, like I'm not. Like that. I, oh, okay. Wait, I see it now. Okay, I refreshed the screen. So, wait, where are you pointing me to? It's the very upper left, right next to the hawk. Can okay. you can you use your cursor on that, Bill? Yeah, Still yeah. Gone. And and Dan is right saying there. that Amen Hotep papyrus is missing. It relates to Princess Cataman in the valuable discovery. So I don't know what I've got up here, but it is a papyrus with Egyptian symbols uh-huh. on it, and there are several that have a boat like uh, right. look to them. So if this is yeah. a legitimate document and it's got these same kinds of symbols on it, uh, I still think it points to the possibility, at least, that needs to be considered that. If Joseph is making a direct connection to Egyptian symbols, I think that that doesn't really support the Catalyst theory very well. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, here's um, the good news, Don. The good news, Don, yeah. is that if the yeah. Catalyst theory is exploded and if the missing papyrus theory is exploded, then Ed Goble is the lone man standing and he wins by <laughs> default. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah. So there are, um, you know, there are all different people who take different views. And so, you know, I know one of the watchers right now is uh, Shulam from um, the the Discussed Mormonism board. Um, And he's done quite a bit of recent work on the Book of Abraham. But years ago, he had uh, his his own sort of apologetic theory right on the book of abraham um i've you know i've talked with ed goble before i'm not super familiar with what he's done well his theory um, don you know, his theory, I, I actually, don uh-huh. ed goble's theory is basically uh-huh. the yeah. little orphan annie secret decoder ring theory of translation yeah <laughs> it's completely happening in a way we don't even understand this is where the person who actually wrote this papyrus in the first place has a hidden meaning secret words that he's encoding in what appears to be the meaning, but really isn't because there's a deeper meaning. And that when Joseph Smith went to translate, he was allowed by revelation to recover the secret deeper meaning as opposed to the surface meaning, which is why it is that his translation has nothing to do with the actual Egyptian that's written on the papyrus. Which means also Ed Goebbels interpretation is also indecipherable from a fraud. Well, absolutely. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. Uh, Just one more thing, uh, John. Just one more quick quick question, which is the catalyst theory is a modern creation in Mormonism 
to adjust to the updated data that we didn't always have a catalyst theory. We created it because it very similarly matches the fraud. They basically look identically the same. The only difference is what's going on inside Joseph Smith's head. Correct. So, so I, I do believe that the catalyst theory was only proposed after the actual addiction papyri were located. Yeah, and the catalyst um, theory, a catalyst yeah. theory would look identical to the critics claim of a fraud. In other words, from the outside yeah, viewer, probably. from the I, outside I mean, observer, they don't look any different. Probably not. I, I, I yeah, again, I'd have to think about that, but but probably it wouldn't. Yeah, what, what, um, I what, uh, I mean, okay. so, yeah, what Bill's saying is that from the outside observer, if you've got a fraud, you've got a person who's pretending to be able to translate from one, la one language to another, and they actually can't because the translation right. has nothing to do with what right. is being purportedly translating. And the catalyst theory is one person's purporting to translate from one language to another, only there's no relationship, once again, between what is purportedly being translated and the translation they produce. Right, 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 right. So, right. So I, I will have in the future some uh, work that I'll be publishing on the Book of Abraham, but that'll be down the line. And then one of the things that I'll be doing is actually looking at the translation timeline for the Book of Abraham to identify what parts were translated at what time. And I think that that itself will have some implications for understanding you know, how all this unfolded. I the, the I recently was looking um, with a friend uh, who goes by the name George Miller online. Um, done a lot of work on Mormonism and Masonry. He and I were recently looking at uh, the Gale uh, closely, and it's an extraordinarily complicated document, right? And so, um, yeah, I. I'm interested as a historian, right? I'm interested in figuring out, like, what's the process that Joseph Smith is going through, right, with the translation of the Book of Abraham and then with the production of this and the other Egyptian alphabet documents. And um, so maybe I'll have more to say when, you know, I feel like I've got more figured out. Mm -hmm. But... Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, no problem. I Thanks. don't have that much that I'd want to go on record with right now. Yeah, totally. Thank you very That's much. fair enough. That. By the way, uh, Don, yeah. uh, Paul Osborne has commented that, that uh, the boat thing is actually a mouth, which makes sense because it looks kind of like a mouth. That's what I thought it was once all those other lines were taken hmm. out of it, that it's a is, mouth. Is, is, it actually from, uh, is it actually from the papyrus? It is from one of the papyrus, apparently. Okay. And it's kind of common. By the way, I'm going to hold this up to the uh, the camera here. Let's see if I can get this there. There we go. So there's the mouth above it. Okay. And then I have that square, which I don't do a good job, but mm -hmm. that's Japanese. And that means mouth as well. Mm. I think that's Gucci, like Yamaguchi. Yeah. And if I'm wrong, please forgive me. It has yeah. been a while since I've been in Japan. But yeah, there's a similarity there. Say what, Maven? Correct. You remember it. Yay. 
by the way, just I did put so, that papyri back up, and the actual inscription here for it is sheet from the papyrus of Amenhotep, 1427 to 1390 BC. So Dan said the papyrus is missing. This seems to say it is that papyrus of Amenhotep, and there are several symbols on it that look like that boat symbol, at least three that I could find. Okay. Um, one thing that not not directly related to the papyrus uh, character looking like, uh, well, oh, you were saying that the boat-shaped character from the Kingdom of Plates looked Japanese. So you know that some of the sources actually say that they used uh, characters from a Chinese like tea box or something. Oh yeah, yeah, I did see those. I that is, that ended up being like a huge. And Gerald Tanner was involved in trying to figure this out and where these uh, these characters might have come from that uh, Wilbur Fugate put together. But that ended up being a royal dead end, apparently. Really? So, um, but on the other hand, I, on the other I, hand, both I, of them kind I, of, they look like mouths. It looks like a mouth, especially the Egyptian one. And um, right. you know, the one from Japanese, I mean, it's it would be, not something that has to have a relationship or a dependence between the two symbols in order for them to be a natural symbol for a mouth. Right. So one thing that, um, one observation I make about the Kinderhook plates is that there are basically no repeating characters on the Kinderhook plates. Um, there are a few characters that uh, may You've got something like, I, I counted them once, I can't remember the number, something like 200 characters, right? Right. On these plates. And you hardly ever have a repetition. Well, anyone who works with a real language knows real languages repeat, right? You have certain uh, concepts, you have certain uh, you have pronouns, you have, you know, other things that will actually repeat in the text. Now, if you look at the, um, the the Book of Mormon characters document, the one that people generally misidentify as the anthem transcript, uh, which was apparently lost, the actual anthem transcript was apparently lost. But if you look at the characters document, it actually has a number of repeating characters. It even has patterns of repeating characters, right? So, like a a string of two or three characters will repeat in different places on that brief little document. And so, um, you know, if Justice Smith, um, you know, if, if one takes the position, right, the, the faithful position, right, that um, Justice Smith is actually getting the characters, transcribing them off of ancient plays, um, then we wouldn't necessarily expect that Justice Smith would know that, um, you know, those, that characters would need to repeat in a real language. But if one is coming from the non-believing perspective, of course, right, then Justice Smith himself would have been the author of that document. And so uh, in that case, you'd have to posit that Joseph knew that in real languages, characters repeat. So then if he were looking at the Kinderhook plate, he would have to realize that this is probably not a real language. 
right? So, so that would um, need to factor in, right? Again, depending on one's angles, one's approach, right, or starting assumption, that would need to factor in to assessing what Joseph Smith would have been doing with the Kinderhook players. Okay. Hey, Don. Is it okay? I thank you so much yeah. for your time, both yesterday with me and tonight with the audience. Um, is it okay if sure. we make room for a couple other people who might want to call in? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, one more thing I'd like to say, though. Please do. <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, actually, I, again, while I haven't gone deep into Book of Abraham stuff lately, and, you know, I'll reserve, you know, um, I'll wait till the future to weigh in more on some of those subjects. I do know some of the people involved, right? So John Gee, um, our, our sons went to elementary school together. They played at recess together. They were in the same chess tournaments and so on. And, um, you know, I, in my own interactions with John Gee, like they've always been pleasant, right? I always liked them. Um, and so I don't know, maybe it's, Maybe the thing is that I kind of like everybody, <laughs> but um, I, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how the discussions play out between the different people. Love it. Thank you, my friend. Okay. Thanks so Thanks much, Sean. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So while you guys were chatting, um, I pulled that document, put it back up. I, I was going over each time. It was like a dozen times that that symbol's in there. Now, Dan says this isn't the papyrus Joseph would have had. That papyrus is now missing. But this is an extremely similar papyrus. And it had uh, it had the symbol in there about 12 times. And so, Dan, if you're listening, my curiosity is that if in one, uh, I forget what the Omen Hotep or whatever the, whatever the name of the papyrus Omen is. Hotep. Yeah. If that one that I did show has a symbol in there 12 times, isn't it highly likely that that symbol's also in the document that's missing that is a papyrus by the same name? Yeah. And Paul Osborne can correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not uh, familiar with Egyptology the way he is. But I believe that symbol is not just for mouth, but it can also be used for speaking. Yeah. And what the symbol is doesn't matter because Joseph Smith's making it up, whether it's a boat or a mouth or a fish or a king, or you know, whatever it is, doesn't matter. The reality is Joseph is telling his audience this symbol means this thing. And if we can show that it that symbol was on that document that is missing, but which we have similar documents of, and it shows up a dozen times, then the reality is that probably the catalyst theory has probably got too many holes in it now, too. I think so too. I was just trying to explain and Paul Osborne's weighing in the mouth is a very common symbol used frequently. It has different meanings depending upon the context, Mm. but I was trying to give an idea as to why it is that that symbol would show up as frequently as it does. I mean, when we're talking about somebody said this or somebody said that, right? If we were writing that in Egyptian, we'd probably be using mouth symbols. Yeah. Um, my point being is that the missing document almost certainly not only had that symbol, but had that symbol plenty of times. Yes. Okay. Just so we're clear. Got it. <laughs> Anybody else want to call in? Yeah. Let me, uh, let me pull up the show here. Um, Who wants to follow Don Bradley? Yeah. Yeah. By all means. This sounds like Mark. Mark, are you on the line? Yeah. Hey guys. How you guys doing? Ooh, got a bit of an echo. Do you have something that we can do on your end? Uh, I'll, I'll, um, 
I'll, I'll calm it down. Um, hey, um, this is really fascinating, guys. Um, just great job. Um, you know, I, I think uh, I'm a logic guy. So to me, there's a tie to the seer stone here. You know, Joseph, when he established, he established a pattern. So I, I think also relevant here is why didn't he use the seer stone when the kinderhook plates were presented to him? And if we have established a couple of things that are very important here in my mind, we've established that the kinderhook plates were modern. We've also established the fact that he used the gale uh, on the kinderhook plates. So that begs more questions. Why didn't he use the gale at all on the original plates? It also begs the question, if he sent those plates off to these societies aquarium or where they were, why didn't he send the original plates off? So to me, there's, there's, a, there's a pattern here so, and a process. And I, I always ask why, even when I was a Mormon and I'd sit in the temple, I'd go, why, why is that that way? So to me, why did he, it had to be because he had this reputation as a translator, right? That he's brought these plates, okay? And I, I think I, I, I saw Dan Vogel's comment. And I think I agree with him. I, I think he was fooled, but I think he wasn't sure. So, and, and, and um, you know, I, I also agree that he likely consulted the Gale because he wanted to cover himself. But to me, I think the real smoking gun here is the whole process. I think when you look at the book of Abraham and all that other stuff, the characters don't matter. None of it matters. There's a process that he established how he received revelation and he was able to translate. So anytime he deviates from that process, there should be a red flag for everybody. It's like you're, um, it's your trick, right? So you're telling everybody how you do your trick. So I used the seer stone, the seer stone. I, I couldn't find any treasure with it, right? But now I got this, you know, these boundaries plates and I'm doing this magic stuff. Now all of a sudden, oh, I, I'm not sticking to my stick. So to me, that's, you know, as I've been trying to wrap my head around this, I'm not real familiar with the other theories. Um, but to me, even looking at the book of Abraham, it also begs the question, is there anywhere that we could show or in history that's been discovered in any context um, that he used, tried to use a seer stone with the book of Abraham translation or didn't? More importantly, if, if he didn't, it, it, it then it goes against the whole way he established how he was a prophet, right? Am I, am I getting this right? I, I would say that it seems odd that what process works on the front end isn't used consistently through his life. And there are going to be yeah. lots of arguments for that. And I think that I agree with you, but my fear is that that gets off in the weeds because I think the points we made here talking about him using the Gale really is where the focus ought to be. And until the apologists come up with a better answer, if they're going to propose the catalyst theory, because it sounds like from Don and Mark and everybody else, the, the missing scroll theory is dead. And so all we have left is Goebel um, and uh, the catalyst theory. And if this puts a nail in the coffin of the catalyst theory, I'm going to find it really difficult that members are going to jump on board Goebel's theory. So Mark, 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 I, I take it this is not Mark Ashurst McGee. No, no, this is Mark Stoddard. I'm, I'm oh. just a guy here. 
ex-Mormon guy that's trying to wrap my head around this. You're doing great. And what Bill and I have found is that the ramifications of this different, uh, of these different things we talked about tonight are far reaching. They have tentacles. And I think you're latching on to some of them uh, with your line of reasoning. By the way, it made me think of something here that based upon what we've talked about tonight, the BOA, the Book of Abraham, the BOA is DOA. <laughs> Dead on arrival. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I like that. Yeah. Well, and that's where I think, you know, maybe part, part of this whole thing was, is uh, especially with these plates, I, you know, again, you know, it, it, it begs a lot of questions. I mean, one, you know, how how are the characters created? Did they, did they consult whoever faked it? Did they consult the Gale when they put the characters on there? You know, did they just make them up as they went? You know, there were, it, it appears to me, I mean, this is an assumption, but it appears to me that um, these Kinderhook plates were presented in a way to somehow maybe put Joseph Smith in a trap and, and, and expose him for being a false prophet. And, and the, the, what I heard earlier in the, in the conversation and correct me if I'm wrong, um, by translating in portions, he kind of saves his butt. You know, well, yeah. He, and the other, can, Mark, the other thing that Don Bradley points out is that Fugate and Wiley, the guys who are doing this, they would never have known that Joseph Smith translated that portion that he translated, at least not any time near 1843, because it's written down in William Clayton's journal. And that's where it remains right. until much later when it's published in the history of the church. So Joseph Smith never comes right. out and says, here's here's the translation. It's published in the Times and Seasons, and here we have it all. So they would never have any, they would never have had any way of knowing that Joseph Smith had translated any part of it. So if it were a trap, and wow. I think that there's a lot to that, they would have they would have had no way of knowing that Joseph Smith had stepped into it. Right. Yeah. Well, anyway, that, that's kind of, I appreciate your time and listening to me. I'm just trying to, this is a little bit of a, a little bit harder to get your head around everything. Um, and uh, I'm kind of, I think I'm getting it. And, uh, you know, for a lot of us ex-Mormons, there's a, uh, a process where I think we're, I mean, we're all in it together. We need to put something in our mind to um, help us with the what really happened question, yeah, you know, totally. because it, at the end of the day, this is another false narrative that's been presented. Am I right? Um, yes. In, in some ways. Yeah. And putting the pieces and together, so, we're now finding out that the narrative does not bear its own weight. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, that's right. You're welcome. Thank you. Have guys. a great Appreciate day. It. No problem. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Okay, let's let's clear the lines because I understand from the comments I'm seeing up on the screen that Donald is now with us. I don't know. So, if do, does Donald want to call in? I, I turned the calls off, but if he says he wants to call, I would let him come through. Can we clear the lines and give Donald a chance to call in? Because I'm sure lots of people are encouraging him to do that. I know they've done that in the past. All right, Donald. The lines are empty and they are taking calls. Please, nobody else call. Donald, if you'd like to jump in and explain this. Now, you're going to have to explain it. You're going to have to have some decent answers. Even Don said, I'm going to need more time. He seems stumped. Right. So, 
by the way, and I apologize, Donald, for last week calling you a wanker. But here's the deal. If you don't call in right now, I'm going to have to assume that you're just too busy wanking. Yeah. Look at this, by the way. I, the document was actually worse than I thought. It was actually longer than I thought. There's 24 times at least. There's 24 or 25. I lost count at that point. Uh, 24 or 25 times that boat symbol shows up. You can bet your ass it's in the missing one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this would be like the letter E in yeah. the English alphabet. So most frequently used letter. Uh, again, I apologize for some of the sound issues in the beginning. I apologize for a couple of misconnections based on what I thought we were putting up on the screen versus what it was. But I think you can see by the points that RFM made uh, in regards to Bradley and uh, Ashurst McGee's work, as well as us having a conversation around Joseph Smith's only play in the whole situation. Uh, once you add it all up together, there's a new problem here for the apologist and I think the uh, gospel topic essay is going to need some revision. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, has Donald called in yet? Let me uh, let me take it off the screen so I don't put numbers up there. Because I would hate to think look. that he doesn't have the courage of his convictions. The phone lines are completely empty. Oh, shoot. Okay, Donald. Even... Donald, we gave you every They're chance empty. we could. Right there. Okay, well, I'm sorry. Donald, if you ever want to call in, we'll reserve a line open for you. Yeah, yeah. We'd love to have this conversation. Although I don't think Donald's really an expert on the book of Abraham or the Kinderhook plates. I guess we'll never know. Is it, What is odd <laughs> is that the people who feature the strongest tend not to be the experts in any of those things they want to argue about, huh? Yeah. So uh, with that, anything else from you, RFM? That's it, except I've had a wonderful time this evening. I hope that this has been a substantive contribution to the discussion because up to this point, uh, these ideas have been, well, Don Bradley mentioned the connection between the Kinderhook plates and the, I almost said the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Kinderhook plates and the Gale in 2011. And in the recent article with Mark Ashurst McGee, they come up to say that the people like Gee and Mulestein who are saying, no, 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 there's no relationship between the Abraham Egyptian documents and the text of the book of Abraham, that's going to have to be revisited. Well, tonight we're revisiting it and putting the fine point on the head of that argument. Yeah. And I bet, I bet if the SCMC, which we know they are watching this and taking notes and passing them on, I'm oh guessing gosh. this is what we'll end up with. They're going to have to get a new, have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. Yes. Those I think will be the ones we avoid.